Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Connecting to the big show. In Oh yeah, exciting times And if I don't mention this now I will forget it Because we have a busy, busy morning ahead This day, three weeks We will be right in the thick Of the Corks 96 FM Giving for Living Radiothon This day, three weeks It will be our jersey day All wearing our sports tops Around the place We'll even get Fergal Barry into a sports top I absolutely promise you we will Maybe not, maybe we will I don't know But anyway uh, we want you to get involved. Go to 96fm.ie. We'll send you a fundraising pack with all the ideas in it. You can do a coffee break. You can collect your coins for us. You can do anything you want. Remember the couple of years when we couldn't really do a whole lot? Well, we can do anything we want now for 2023. So looking forward to the Giving for Living Radiothon kicking off May 25th. Only on Cork's 96fm. All the deeds that you need to plan whatever you want to plan for us. Uh, at uh, 96am.ie and if you have a story to tell that you'd like to tell us or like to be part of Radiothon through the opinion line you can also send us an email to opinion at 96fm.ie and we'll chat to you in a couple of weeks time one of the things that stops people picking up the phone and calling a radio station. They'll send us a text. They might even send us a voice message. They'll send us an email. They'll send us a letter. They'll send us a card. They'll send us a pigeon. Yes, they do. One of the things people don't like or are half afraid of when they go on the radio, well, there's two things, actually. One of them is, oh, everybody will know me. Actually, about six people will really know you. The six people who know you best, everybody else, no. But the other thing, that um, people tell, I can't stand the sound of my own voice. Oh my God. I Why? There is a thing. It is a thing in psychology. We don't like the sound of our own voices. 
there's a reason. There's a physical, anatomical reason. It's the way our bodies are made. Believe it or not. We'll explore that uh, during the course of the morning and plenty more besides. But first, uh, do you remember yesterday Anne Doherty spent quite a lot of time here uh, in the studio with me, the Chief Executive of Cork City Council? We went through a lot of issues and there are still responses coming in and the idea wasn't to have a Barney with the boss, uh, the city managers they used to be known, it wasn't to have a Barney, it wasn't to have a shouting match, it was to get, try to get to the bottom of some of the things that come up on the opinion line from time to time one of those things is the closure of retail business um, and yesterday three businesses three businesses closed their doors in one day. Con Murphy's menswear is gone from Patrick Street. Jade Garden is gone from Blarney Street. And GameStop is also gone from Patrick Street. And that comes on the back of there are now nearly 20 businesses. Idle. Premises idle on Oliver Plunkett Street. I brought that up uh, with Anne Doherty during our conversation yesterday. I spoke recently with the owner of Household Linens who's closing up 20 units on Oliver Plunkett Street empty. Like, will they will they go into dereliction? Um, I think any city, I suppose there's one thing, there's a couple of things, PJ, and uh, retail's changing very, very significantly. We've all seen that. Um, there's the whole online disruption, there's the change in relation to international um, houses coming in, but I suppose one of the things we should remember is that Cork has a huge network of, ind- of independent traders, and Household Linen was a great asset. I spent many a bob in there myself, mm. uh, but and I'm very sorry to see them go. Um, but I think that we see um, new things happening in the city. So, for example, if I look at Dune came into the city recently, uh, North Face have come in, um, uh, Mango are coming but into the old them, quills. None of them are traditional family no, 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 household no, no. businesses, no, no, which I'm is just, what the city was built on. Yeah, and I, I'm just looking at mm. some of them as the ones that are coming in. I do believe that the... Um, that the traditional family businesses are still opening up. Some of them are in coffee shops and other like beauty salons, etc. It's not the traditional retail that we've we've enjoyed. But I suppose the other thing for all of us is if we want to have vibrant retail in the city, we have to support it. Mm. We have to come in and spend our hard-earned cash in those independent stores. Um, in Which order brings for them us back to... to the traffic issue because people don't want to sit in traffic when they're trying to come in and do a bit of shopping. Well, I think that we've, um, and as a response to COVID, but also as a response to what people wanted, we've pedestrianised a significant amount of the city centre. Mm. Uh, as you know, during COVID, we... Will there six, be more? Um, I think there will be in the future because I think that's what people will want. So if you go down Oliver Plunkett Street, now and I'm sure you've been down there yourself Mm -hmm. it's like Christmas Eve on a normal day loads of people out and about young people, older people I think that's the vibrancy that Mm. the city needs I don't know about you but I'm not so sure that Anne Doherty got what I was getting at with the number of traditional family businesses closing down and, and that people are disturbed and upset about that. And it's great to see Mango, and it's great to see North Face, and it's great to see every new business is great to see. It's the traditional businesses closing after many a long day. Uh, one of those uh, to announce its closure recently is Con Murphy Menswear from uh, on Patrick Street. Been there for 91 years. Neil Murphy is the son of the legendary Con and joins me. Neil... 
I don't know if you heard those remarks by by, by Anne Doherty um, with regard to the closure of, of retail. Good morning to you. Uh, hello, PJ. Hello. Um, I did. I did. Yeah. Uh, look, be honest with you, I I wouldn't have Anne Doherty's job for all the teams. Kind of. She's a tough, tough job there, and uh, it's. Um, I suppose it's difficult for me because I'm a traditionalist and I love the way the city was. And, uh, and you know, I started as a school boy, a messenger boy in 1975 and then uh, started full-time in 1980. And, you know, the, the, the city moves on. And I suppose we have to, um, we have to embrace the, the change um, rather than trying to keep things as they were because... We've new cultures now, and we have we're part of Europe, and they fund, you know, the, the they fund the city council uh, as well as a lot of other things. So uh, we have, you know, with bike lanes and and bus lanes are part of the the future. We have to try and get on with it. Uh, it's like the the city and the layout has it's it's I suppose it's nothing to do with what our decision to be honest with you really it's, you know it's just no it's not really I, I, I um I wouldn't I wouldn't say anything against okay. um okay. uh you know what's around like it's it's probably more to do with culture than anything else yeah well that, that, uh, that that's that's a fair response so let's talk about your own case Neil and your own business you've you've dressed and the family have dressed everyone from from Taoiseach to rugby internationals so, so why yeah. the decision now? Well, um, when you're running a business over a long period of time, you need you need people interested in coming into the business, and that's the main thing. That it's the biggest challenge to to a family business or a, an independent business that you have some people coming through the whole time, and and then when when the existing people get tired and and just a little bit stale, you have new people coming in with energy and and uh, and. You need that. So I was lucky in 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 respect of when my father opened um, in 1932. Uh, my brothers, uh, who were a lot older than me, I was I was very much a late addition to the family, and uh, so w- even though we were the same generation, it it, it bridged the generation that was an age gap, and they kept the business going in the 60 in the 60s and 70s. And uh, when I came in in the eighties, it was, it was a, a smoother transition. And when they when they moved on, then I was the, I was the man with hunger and 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 drove it on for for thirty years, whatever it was. Yeah. Uh, so I'm I'm forty three years now in here. And now my old kids, you know, the, um, they're thanks for the God, they're, they're fantastic kids, and we love them to bits. But they're not interested in retail. And you know, long ago, you're you're dragged in by the ear. <laughs> uh, to, to your family business, you know what I mean. You're, you're, come on in here. You're, you're, you, you, uh, you have a business to, to look after, or whatever. But you can't do that with young people. They have their own minds and their own, yeah. business, you know, their own, their own lives and their own interests. And if they're not interested, they're not interested, and, that, and that's it. Yeah. So this was going to come down. Um, this was going to come down the line anyway. This decision. But what made it uh, more, I suppose. Um, urgent was the fact that uh, my right hand man Donny Welch, who's been with us for years, uh, he he just made the decision started the year that he wasn't coming back, and uh, so um, that was you know that was a huge blow, and um, we, we just added the whole thing up, and you know, you know we said like I, I'm I'm 63 now at the end of this year, and we were I'm saying 
you know, do I bring someone in to try and replace Donny? Because, you know, the, the guy is just, he was so much part of the business. He, yes. he was virtually irreplaceable. He was the face and, of the business, to be fair. Pardon? He was the face of the business for he many, was. many years. He was years. the face of the business, and uh, I was always behind the scenes. And and I, you know, you're either comfortable with people or not. I'm, unfortunately, I'm, I'm I'm not comfortable. I'm not a great salesman, so I'm always in the background. So I was kind of floating around, you know, in the office and and, and involved in uh, websites and and um, yeah. we went two two online stores and that kind of thing. But he was the he was the man on yeah. the on the sales floor. You'd, you'd go in for a shirt, and Tony would sell you an entire suit of clothes, and then end up with it. You, he would. He's a fantastic guy, and uh, just 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 now he he had said he that he might go on three day week this year, and then he'd 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 see it out because he's sixty seven, and uh, but he said, look, I, I just have enough, and okay. uh, so it was a, a bit of a blow. We, we, we but, wish him we wish him well in in his retirement. The family owned the shop, don't they, Neil? Because your dad bought it. He did. He did. He bought it in, uh, in the earlier years, I suppose. He maybe rented it in the... I, I, I wouldn't know, be honest yeah. with you, but I'd say he kind of maybe bought it within 10 years or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. So we're, we're here. Um, we're here. We had, um, like, in the earlier years, we had... Um, he had his right-hand man, like I have now, would, would be a man called Charlie Megan. And Charlie was involved with, with the bar, Hurling Football Club, and he was here for sixty six years full time. Would you believe that? And uh, he went on he went on part time then for about about a year, and then he, he retired. But uh, like we we have the history of uh, having staff uh, that that are with us for a long time. Mike, Michael Kelly is still here. He's with us forty eight years. So. Wow. It's, yeah, so uh, the traditions are great, and I suppose... And that's a sign of a great business, Neil. That is a sign of a great business, you know. It, yeah, yeah. Well, it is, you know, great, great, with great staff, great customers. It's, it was a huge decision to make, I must say, because yeah. I was making it on behalf of, not myself, but on behalf of the family as well. And the fact of, of um, you know, the, the great customers, great memories... You know, it is, it's, um, you know, it is, I was looking yesterday, um, we have a visitor's book, we, we, we opened it in 1956, and uh, I was going through it, and the people that came in, and you know, I was, you know, it, it, it really, I was crying, to be honest with you, I was crying mm. because it was, it was very emotional, it was very emotional for the customers as well, they were very upset yesterday when, yeah. when the news broke, people calling and people phoning. And uh, it was, it was, it was, um, it's a hard decision, but, but one that you feel is right for the time. Well, yeah, it is just you know, it is. Um, it's it's never easy to make a decision no. like that. But no. we, we're 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 hopeful that we we've a bit of work to do in the building here, and uh, if we uh, if it works out and everything goes well, we were uh, our, our general business would be taken over by Tom Murphy Menswear, and we will um, we will. Maybe Michael Kelly will hopefully stay on, and we'll we'll do big. We'll, we we have a section of our store uh, already in big sizes, and we'll we'll probably move that to okay. um, just the ground floor. Then, so, but, so there uh, will be, there will still be the rag trade, as it were, will still operate out of Sixty Patrick Street. It will. It will. To, 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 we're all things going well. We're 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 we're, uh, we're just in the, uh, just have started the sale now, yeah. and. Uh, so it's just um, when when that's over in about three weeks' time, uh, we'll, um, we'll we'll have an entrance then to Tracy Shoes, and we'll keep that going then for for a while until 
uh, but the, the, the official date is the 1st of September that we, we're, we're handing over our, okay. our tapes. So that's it. So, uh, right. well, but um, that's it. Well, well, Neil, I wish you well and I wish everybody connected to Tom Murphy menswear well both thank you for the past and look forward to the future in whatever new guys will be there and I'm delighted to speak with you today lovely no problem thank you very much PJ. thank you bye bye that's Neil Murphy son of the great Con Murphy Con Murphy menswear closing the rag trade will continue to operate out of 60 Patrick Street that is the plan but it's the end of an era after 91 years in business his dad opened the place in 19. 19- 32. OM18969696. Also, yesterday announcing their closure, Jade Garden and GameStop. Businesses that have been around for a heck of a long time, each and every one of them. Kate says if you go to Wilton, it's jammed. There's something wrong with the centre of town and it needs to be looked at. The people themselves need to support the traders, but better shuttle services like you have in Brussels, for example, would help small businesses. Every two minutes, is better than unpredictable double-deckers. And I did bring this up with the manager yesterday, the chief executive yesterday. Where are all these park and rides we were promised 50 years ago? Like, we were promised in the 70s. If you're too young to remember it, look up the LUTS, L-U-T-S, LUTS, Land Use and Transportation Study, from the 70s. We were promised a necklace of four park and ride slots around the city. We got one, and that's the one out there by the Black Ash, which opens way, way too late in the morning and closes way, way too late in the evening. We were promised four of them. We only got one. Yeah, another... Look, Just look at the list of what's gone. HMV, Porters, Debenhams, Domino's, the West Cork Burger, Gloria Jeans, Argos, Carphone Warehouse... Loads and loads of businesses. Liam Rochelle's gone from Oliver Plunker Street. We mentioned Household Linens going from Oliver Plunker Street. Brewdog didn't last nine months. Oasis is gone. Finn's Corner is gone. Captain America's gone. Suez, that wonderful bar that was there. So many businesses gone out of our city centre. And yes... We know there are plans for Debenhams. It has been sold to somebody. I, I don't know yet who, but it has been sold to somebody and they have plans for it and there are plans for the Savoy and plans for here and plans for there. Everywhere you go, there's plans. Do you remember when your man came over from CNN, Richard Quest, and he gave a very honest review of the city centre and ruffled a few feathers in doing so? But we were told, oh, everything is changing. It takes time. It takes time takes time, but the city centre is in a bad way. Maybe, maybe, maybe in five years it'll be fantastic. We don't know. We keep being told bear with us. It'll be great. And maybe it will. But I look down on Patrick Street now and I see a street that is half empty. And Old Plunker Street with 20 outlets empty. Once, once household in is, is finally gone. And it's sad. It is very sad. 0818 96 96 96. You can't... What's this? You can't get a litre of milk in Carrig Navarre and our three pubs are down to one. This is coming in from Carrig Navarre. It's not just the city that is bereft. You can't get... What? There's nowhere in Carrig Navarre to buy a litre of milk. I did not know that. 
that's a, a place like Cary Navarre that doesn't have a, a place to buy a litre. So where do you get a litre of milk if you live in Cary Navarre? And they had three pubs. I remember them well. Spent time in all of them, one time or another. Down to one. So it's not just the city centre, which is true. The Cork's 96FM Giving for Living Radiothon returns May 25th to 27th to raise funds for Cork Cancer Services. You make me feel... Every year, we speak to people touched by cancer. So if you've got a story to tell, we'd love you to get in touch. Simply email radiothon at 96fm.ie to find out more. The Giving for Living Radiothon, supporting Cork Cancer Services, May 25th to 27th. You make you make feel... Only on Cork's 96FM. Lots of other family businesses struggling and just the face of retail changing. It's something that we'll return to and uh, happy to take your thoughts on it as we move on to another topic of conversation. 0818 96 96 96. I've spoken before with Andrew Geary uh, about the fight for the educational rights of his son Callum. And a major settlement recently in the High Court means now that Callum will have what he deserves, which is an Irish sign language teacher and interpreter in school with him at all times so he can get the uh, education that he needs and deserves. Because, Andrew, as we've spoken before on the programme, Irish sign language is Callum's first language. Good morning. Good morning, PJ. Thank you. Yeah, and that, that's that's correct. Irish sign language is a, a native language of, of our island and it's uh, Callum's first first and uh, primary language for for him and that's that's why we've campaigned so hard to uh, try and get him the access that every deaf child deserves in the education system. He's fourteen years now. This has been a long battle. He's fourteen years old. Yeah, I think you and I spoke a long you know long time ago. You've uh, brought the subject up numerous times over the years, and it's been. Uh, campaign that's almost uh, a decade old in many ways and didn't, there's been a, a few uh, good periods during that when we thought the matter was resolved but unfortunately mm. you have to keep going. Remind, remind uh, people again Andrew why you went to the High Court, why you ended up going there? Basically we just felt it was the only language in the state that a person could go into a classroom without a full qualification in that language to teach or to interpret that language in. If you're teaching German, Irish, French, Spanish, you have to have a degree in that language to go into any school classroom in the country. And with our sign language, that wasn't required. And as it's Callum's first language, we needed the language source to be of the highest level possible. And unfortunately, there was no protection for children on on any scale in legislation, despite the Irish Sign Language Act 2017 being in place. So we had to make sure that the standard of person coming into the classroom was set in stone. Now you've had the settlement. Callum, I understand, is thriving in school, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But it's taken a toll. It takes a toll on family life, Andrew, having to fight like this, doesn't it? Yeah, you, you have two jobs and it's very, very tiring on the energy levels, obviously, enough and on your soul. And only that due to 
brilliant teachers that I had when I went to school in Morningstar, Clash Creek Street or UCC. And my belief in my country was was challenged deeply over the last few years. But I, I felt, as Thomas Francis Maher said once upon a time, truth will have its day of triumph. And I just hoped that it wouldn't take as long as it did for this day to emerge. Unfortunately, it, it took a long, long time. And uh, it's a lot of burnout, a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of stress and anxiety. And when you're going into the high court, it's a, a very, very demanding location because it's you're on the witness stand making your own call and you, you have to defend everything you say. And you're risking everything you own. Yeah, unfortunately, that that's part. Now, I, I we're very lucky to have access to the high court in our democracy, but it's a very costly place to go. And it can cost hundreds of thousands of euros if you lose and even if you win. Sometimes you mightn't get all costs, so it's a very expensive place to go. The, the high court is a, a very demanding place. You have to have the very best if you're going to go into the high court to take on your own state. Well, then you have to find mm. the very best legal people that, that you can possibly afford. Yeah. You, and you served the state. You're a former Garda. Um, so yeah, yeah, I'm you, still a serving oh, Garda. you're still yeah. serving. Yeah. I beg your pardon, Andrew. I yeah. thought you were deterred yeah. from that. Yeah. Um, so... You know, as someone who loves his country, to find yourself having to face it down in the courts—that's that was like foreign to you, wasn't it? Yeah, it's been absolutely soul destroying. I, I wanted to join my job to serve our country, and I've given twenty-five years of service. I nearly lost my life on more than one occasion serving our country, and I put on my uniform trying to serve our country every day, and it was a very, very difficult period of my life because I come to work every day as a public servant and for that same country I serve every day to deny my son full access to his education was soul destroying and yeah. it just it just was very very demanding and I, I just found that only for I, I believed one day PJ I, I do have a belief in our beautiful country that one day the soul of our country would emerge and truth would come out and I like you look back at our history and our the great people, our founders and look at the real liberator of our time, Vicky Feel, and you look at those people and you say, listen, these people fought the system and outed the truth and I just felt one day that the truth would out and that's 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 all. It's just your faith in your country and your faith in your family are the only two things to keep you going when Indeed. you haven't slept that night and you have to go to work the next day and give 110% and the stress of reading papers and reports and getting ready for the next court date, etc., etc. It's a, it's a very demanding place to be. Yeah. Yes. And when you went into court then and the settlement was reached, obviously there's joy, uh, but what else is there? I, I will say, I suppose people expected us to celebrate. I didn't, PJ. I'm a pragmatist. Unfortunately, it has stripped that out. Total burnout was all I got and total uh, just flat battery. And the settlement happened a few weeks ago, PJ, but I just was so burned out, I couldn't couldn't talk. Of course, I was just of course. Absolutely, absolutely flat. And you got your thank you card from us a few weeks ago, just anyone that supported us on our journey. Uh, I said that's the first they're the first people we have to thank the people in our own country and around the world I greatly appreciated that by the told, way Andrew I yeah, really did yeah, they told they told our story and that's the pillars of our democracy PJ the people who tell the stories 
the people who legislate and our High Court. And I, I do believe in those three pillars and it's very important to say thank you. So I said, listen, before we say anything, let's say thank you to all the people that were there with us along this journey. It's been a fairly difficult one, a lot of lot of uh, roller coasters, a lot of false dawns, as I said, some days you think you're coming to the end and next you're knocked off the top of the mountain mm. and you have to go from the bottom to climb all the way up to the top again. Mm. And all you can deal with there is your faith and your family and your country and just hope and pray that the next climb won't be as hard as the previous one. A question I'm often asked because I share so much of my own stories here on this programme and I'll ask you now today, how's the umfala? How's Callum? How's he doing? Great, great. Uh, listen, and he's insulated from this and mostly, like, he, he enjoys life and he's loving uh, school and he, he's he's enjoying life and, listen, like that, he's a typical teenager. He 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 is finding him himself, and that's that's the important part. We four, we four, t- you know, teenagers, and we God every parent you. knows God that that you're you. you're yeah, yeah, you're rearing them again a second time round in, in teenagehood, and the same as you or I, PJ. Like there's rebellion days, and there's there's the really good uh, days. So, but I I'm very very proud and love my four boys and my wife and it's very important to to enjoy those days and separate that you have to keep like a bit of separation your work-life balance and it's just that for the last most of the last 10 years I two jobs and and that's the campaigner and my day job let's say and then you have your family life outside that and you try to keep them completely, completely separate. You're not going to be able to do it every day because you're spending a huge amount of time, 40 or 50 hours some weeks on campaign stuff. So you basically have two full-time jobs, but you have carers and campaigners, volunteers on all the time, PJ. You're one yourself and you know you have two full-time jobs and you have to find that energy to work 100 hours a week rather than 40 hours a week. And, and, so, and somewhere, you, you find it somewhere. It's because you do, you have to, isn't that right? Yeah, yeah. And that's that's exactly it. And you just look at, I just look to, there's, we all have brilliant role models in our lives. And I look to some of the brilliant teachers I had going to school and in, in college. And then I look at my mentors and role models in work. And then I look at the people who care and volunteer and, give community service every day and I look to them and say look listen look at that person yeah. they keep going they're dedicated they're diligent you know they, I'm sure many of them contributing. I'm sure many of them Andrew have looked at you and said the very same thing thank you and I'm very 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 happy for your family and I'm very very grateful for the, for the most thoughtful card that you sent me a couple of weeks ago and I knew we would, we'd talk eventually when you were ready uh, and that's what we've done now Andrew Geary, thank you very much my best to Callum and the rest of the family and indeed to Helen, whom I've ever met um, but uh, but thank you Andrew 0818 96 96 96 John says, here I am again listening to another parent using the word fight, it's a shame brought down on this country by leaders in a country founded on the principle of cherishing all the children equally. The leaders are elected to solve the problems of the people, but they just see it as a gig where they can socialise with the big wigs and go to things like the coronation or presidential visits. It's a strong point, John. It's a very strong point. And remember, in terms of education and the rights of young people, to an education, the rights of everyone to an education. There was a, there was an attorney general who advised a government one time 
you're going to lose all these cases, but you have to actually fight them. So let's let's not forget that either. Oh eight one eight ninety six ninety six ninety six. They have fought countless cases. They have fought countless families. They have fought those families, and I I, I speak this. It just gets under my skin a bit. They have fought countless families in the full knowledge, in the full knowledge that those families will win. And they continue to do it. Uh, and that's the most sickening element of all of this. Cork loves the arts. We do too. That's why we bring you the Arts House. Every Sunday on Cork's 96 FM. Hi, it's Elmarie. Join myself and Connor every Sunday morning to find out what's happening in the arts all over Cork. There's so much happening. Fantastic festivals with great events for all ages. And we'll tell you all about them. The Arts House. Sunday mornings, 8 to 10. With Griffin's Potatoes. Planted, picked and produced in Cork. Griffin's Potatoes. The great taste of home. Cork. 96 FM. Now, Kevin, we were talking about vaping recently and how, look, the jury was out for a while on vaping and now the jury is kind of half in, half out. But certainly while it helps people to give up smoking, that we do appreciate, it seems to be almost as damaging as smoking in its own right. At least that's what the doctors are telling us. Things like popcorn lung and young people getting addicted to vapes and all of that. And Colin Burke was on with me earlier in the week talking about how we need to maybe take another look now at vaping. And in Australia, they have banned vapes unless you get them in a chemist and on prescription. Kevin, you, you have vaped and you do vape. I Morning. do, I do, yeah. Good morning. I mean, I started smoking, I suppose, when I was 13 and stupid. And I carried on till I was 43 and continued to be stupid, you know. But um, I tried everything to quit. I went to the doctors, got the nicotine patches, got the gum, tried everything bar hypnosis. That's about the only thing I didn't try. But someone suggested to me to go and invest and buy a proper vape, and I did. And it was about 70, 70 euro. I went and bought a kit in a shop in Charleville, in a vape shop in Charleville. And to this day, I haven't picked up a, a tobacco cigarette, not once. Uh, once you get, once I got over the two days craving of getting off of it, and the mental block that I had to to get off of it, then it was just easy for me. Uh, I think there's definitely a conversation to be had about disposable vapes. The, um, you know, the little pens you see them thrown all over the place. Yeah. There, there's absolutely no purpose to them. But to say that um, it's a gateway into tobacco smoking and what have you, it's just nonsense because statistics will will show you that the number of people buying cigarettes and smoking cigarettes is falling year on year on year and has been for a while. And if if vaping was a gateway for teens into smoking, you would see that rise, but you're not. You're seeing it fall constantly. Now, Are you vaping? No, Are you still vaping? Oh, yeah. Um, but I, I've got to say, I don't like the flavourings ones. I, I just don't need, think there's a need for them. I think a tobacco-flavoured one... Uh, menthol flavoured one that mimic what a cigarette is to help you get off and you gradually wean down the strength of the liquids that you're using ultimately to zero but it's it helped me no end it, and it genuinely has I can only tell you my lived experience you can find a study to suit whatever but you started you started vaping Kev to yeah. get off of the cigarette addiction get off cigarettes, yeah. but you're now but, still vaping so I yeah. would contend that you really have only shifted your addiction to something else. Oh yeah, of course I have. 
I'm not saying it. I mean, this is this is what you got. You have to come in it. There is no absolute in this. It's not. There is no. This is safe. This isn't safe. There's no such thing as safe when you're talking about this. Right. It's safe. It's and it's one is more dangerous than the other. And when you say that the science is back on this and talk about popcorn and stuff like that, the vaping studies that are done in America have to be taken in the context that the liquid used in America is much different to the regulated vape liquids that are used in the UK and Ireland and Europe because in Europe it's much more stringently regulated. The strength, the maximum, like the legislation they brought in in 2016, the maximum strength for a liquid in Ireland that you can buy is 18 milligrams down to zero. Yeah. It used to be unlimited. You could get whatever strength you wanted. In America, you can get whatever strength you wanted, and there's no regulations on the quality of what is being sold to you. So the studies that are based in America are, you know, American centrist, if you understand where I'm coming from. I do. The other side of it is the NHS last month launched a campaign to help people to quit smoking, and they're spending, I think they're investing in a million vape kits that you go through your GP to get. I see. And then they, what happens is you go, you go to your GP, then you're tested to, uh, with it for a six-week period to help you get off of tobacco smoking. So you've got one side in Australia that are saying it's bad, it's the devil, it's evil. Well, well what they've done in Australia, if I'm reading the reports correctly, mm. Kevin, is that they have said pretty much like yourself, unless you have been recommended by your yeah. doctor to buy a vape or to, to use a vape rather and that you're going to a chemist to get a regulated and approved one then yeah. you, can't, you can't go down into the street and buy them and a 15 year old or 16 year old can't pick up these disposable ones it's a kind of a half and half solution Yeah, but I know from first hand experience that if you I've, I've, I've had it before where I was sat in the car and I asked my youngest who's, who was 18 at the time but she was wearing her school uniform can you go in and just pick me up some liquid? I have to go to go. I do. I had to go to another shop, and she come back to me. And said they wouldn't sell it to me. I said well, you're over eighteen. So I have my ID. So yeah, but you're in a school uniform, so they won't sell it to you. Yeah. I mean, people underestimate how retailers are really on the ball. They they don't want the impression given, especially in rural areas. They don't want to be in the impre- give the impression that that's the shop you go to. I see. They want to be the responsible retailer, and I know I think that's the right way to go. I think they should really look at getting rid of the disposable ones. There's no need for them, and they should have a case where you can only buy liquid in a registered vape shop. And the regulations around it are pretty strict because we have to go by EU guidelines, and that's a lot more stringent than they are in North America and in most parts of the world. Which is, a, which is a very fair point. Kevin, thank you very much. 0818969696, the vaping. Kevin is kind of making the case, very clearly making the case, for what they've done in Australia, which this kind of casual, disposable purchase of vapes has been outlawed there, but you can get it if you want to use it to quit smoking or whatever. And that's what he's done. Now, he's still vaping, so he's kind of moved his addiction from the, the fags to the vapes. But he's got the benefit out of it. He's everything else, every other way of trying to quit smoking failed. Oh eight one eight ninety six ninety six ninety six. We someone said earlier by text. I read it out. You can't get a liter of milk from Carrig Navarre or in Carrig Navarre rather. You can't get a liter of milk anywhere in Carrig Navarre. It prompted a voice note from. Is it Ethel? Hi. Good morning. I know. Um, 
the people carrying the bar travel over to Whitechurch to get their carton of milk. Yeah, that shop's been closed for a year now. They have to go into Whitechurch. And the same for, for petrol. Didn't know that. 0818-96-96-96. Ethel, thank you. Now, Ashling O'Neill. It was a few minutes before four o'clock in the morning and a mirror was removed, very knowledgeably done, from your parents' car. Morning. Good morning. And you were furious initially, as anybody would be. But you yes, calmed I down. Suppose you calmed my down initial a bit. reaction, yes. Yeah. My initial reaction, uh, was I got a phone call from my mother on Monday morning to say that um, Dad had gone out to the car to go to the shop and he had actually come back in and said to my mother, do you know where the mirror is? Um, because she had been cleaning the car the day before. So, I don't know, he, he, he didn't automatically jump to the conclusion that it had been stolen. Mm-hmm. Like, he, he just assumed that maybe something went wrong with the mirror, maybe it fell off when she was cleaning the car. And she said, no, the mirror was there when I finished cleaning the car yesterday. So then they went back on the ring camera um, to check. And I think it was 3.58 in the morning that a, a young man had um, approached the car and uh, confidently and expertly removed the, the wing mirror from the driver's side. Mm. Was this an electric mirror or just a... Yeah. I think it is electric, yeah. yeah. So that's yeah. a bit of skill involved there. like. Mm, yeah. Um, so when she showed me the footage initially, you know, I was uh, annoyed in the, initially, you know, that somebody would, you know, take something belonging to someone else. Um, but then I, I sat with it for a minute because I reviewed the footage over and over and I sat with it for a minute and I thought, well, this is a really young boy, you know, definitely under the age of 18. And it was 3.58 in the morning and I just thought, how sad that is that there's a young man walking around at 3.58 in the morning engaging in, in this type of activity that could possibly lead to a life behind bars and just that it was just a really sad situation and instead of getting angry about it and projecting anger about it, I just wanted to highlight um, the need sometimes for compassion and empathy in situations like this. Um, And I wanted to kind of, I suppose, in putting the post up on Facebook, I wanted to maybe appeal to this person's conscience. Um, And... I, I've always operated from a place of empathy um, and I always try to see the bigger picture. Like when you, when you incidents happen in your life, um, I, I don't believe anything is random. I believe that everything happens for a reason. Right. And um, maybe, you know, this person needed an intervention um, because nobody is born bad. Nobody wants to be a criminal. Nobody wakes up and says, I think I want, when I'm, when I'm older, I really want to be a really good criminal. Nobody says that. Nobody wants that. People want to be proud of themselves. People have, you know, want, want to do good in life. And I think it's their experiences and their circumstances that shape who they are. And this person's experiences and circumstances obviously haven't been good. And maybe if that person has shown a bit of empathy and compassion, understanding and a bit of mentorship, those skills that they used um, to engage in that act could be put to use and that person could possibly, you know, get some training and, you know, an apprenticeship and go on to have an legitimate wage. Because clearly, clearly, as you say in your post on Facebook, and there's a grab of the 
of the footage. Clearly, this is a youngster who knows what he's doing. There's, mm-hmm. there's a level of skill involved here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There are two reactions in my mind that will be in other people's minds. It's not about my reaction, actually. There are two mm-hmm. reactions. One is saying, that's very fair, that's very kind. The other is saying, oh, for God's sake, you're making excuses for, 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 a, for a scut. I just, I just, I, I have a real problem. First of all, with people referring to people as scuffs. I know, know, but I'm just um, saying that's what people yeah, would think. Actually. Yeah, I know, I understand that. Yeah, and like, I just think that sometimes and all too often we operate from a place that isn't compassionate. And if you fight fire with fire, in my experience, you're just going to create more fire. And if you maybe try to quench that fire with a bit of compassion and empathy. Um, you know, you might be able to grow from that. Do you know what I mean? And I just think everyone deserves a second chance, especially if you're under the age of 18. And, you know, you, you, you know, we're all young and dumb at times. And we were all young and dumb and nobody is without sin. We were all and young and dumb, Ashley, and we all did young and dumb things, but very few of us in the greater scheme skillfully removed a wind mirror uh-huh. from the side of a car. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. But you see, when you look at it, if you have an incident with somebody, in, say, today, um, you're only seeing a snapshot of their life. That incident that you had with that person is only a mere snapshot of their life. But it's and a snapshot that can change yours. Yes, it can. And then you have a choice as a person. You, you at that point, have to make a decision about how you are going to react to it. Yeah. And I think all too often we react out of emotion and anger and frustration, and it causes further problems. And your reaction can have a knock-on effect to somebody else. It's an interesting. And it it's, it's an interesting it's take, Ashley. A it's, chain of events. It's a very, you kind, know, it's a very kind take. You got the mirror back. We did. What happened? And um, it was basically handed to my father two days later. Um, he didn't give us any details. He just said, "All you need to know is it was given back." And. Um, you know, Actually handed you know, to him face to face or just left on the doorstep or something? No, it was handed to him face to face. Right. It was handed to him face to face. I don't know what was said or, you know, what conversation happened. Um, he didn't give us any details. That would be dad. You know, he didn't give us any details about, like, who handed it back to him or anything like that. He just said, look, it's back. There was no harm done. Nobody was hurt, you know. And well, it's maybe, easy to see, Ashling, where you got your compassion. Yes, both my parents are just fabulous people, great people, um, and always reared me to come from a place of empathy and try and not allow my emotions to control my reactions to things. Mm. Um, And that can be hard. That's difficult for people, you know. You have to train yourself to be like that. Um, It's not an easy thing to do. I may tell you now, Aisling, I wouldn't have your restraint. Well, you see... Empathy is, you know, it's uh, you have to suspend all your ego to operate from a place of empathy. You know, I, you know, you can take. I could have taken the stance of, oh, how dare he, and this is, you know, terrible to do this to my parents. But at the end of the day, it was just a mirror. You have to look at it, you know, as as it is. It was just a mirror. Okay. Right. It, yes, it was an inconvenience. It was criminal damage. You know, um, you know, I just think like. You have to think about the bigger picture and 
look outside of what could be going on in this person's life that is making them act in this way. And maybe nobody has given them that time. You could or they're be, just lost you could in be the system. one good adult that changes their life and there's a whole Yeah, lot of I talk. think, you know, we should all as adults, you know, try to be mentors and, okay. and lead by example. And I would hope, like, I don't know, I have children, you know, and it's very hard parenting in these times yeah. and trying to maintain control, especially in the age of social media. And I can't stand there in my, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for I suppose in my glory and say that my child would never do something like that you would hope that they wouldn't Ashling, but I take your point Ashling, I'm going to leave it there for no reason other than the clock but a very very interesting phone call and one that may start a conversation where do you what do you think of where Ashling is coming from here the minds are live Join the conversation. Call 0818 96 96 96. Extra WhatsApp 083 396 96 96. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. This is the opinion line with PJ Coogan. Parks 96 FM. Thought-provoking, I think, is the best description of my conversation with Ashling in just a couple of minutes because I think people would have a, a take on it Bernie certainly does I'll come to that in, in a while 0818 96, 96, 96 also Dennis wants to talk to me in a second about the changes in the city centre so hold on there Dennis it won't be long but on the subject of vapes talking to Kevin who Kevin agrees with what they're doing in Australia and says of all the things he tried to get off of smoking cigarettes the vape was that the only one that ever ever worked even though he's still using it it is the only one that, that ever worked to get him off uh, the, the cigarettes Yes, he sent us a voice message to 083 396 96 Hey PJ I'm just listening to the radio now and I just want to tell you that there is a store in town that they are selling the vape to the students because um, I catch my daughter we won so when I ask her how she did it, so uh, she went to the shop and she bought it and all her friends and they're only in first year. So they're only 13. So, yes. That's the kind of thing that is outlawed now in Australia. Kevin said it wouldn't happen in his neck of the woods because they wouldn't sell vape juice to his daughter because, yes, she's over 18, but was in her school uniform but yes he's got a different experience from downtown thank you for that if you ever want to make your point in that way 083 396 96 96 and I'll come to it in a while there's a one of the as I said earlier on this morning one of the things that puts people off calling a radio show or recording a voice note for a radio show is I hate the sound of my own voice there's a reason for that and one of the reasons is we don't hear what the rest of the world hears, which is a strange one. 0818 96 96 96. So I'll go back to what Ashling said in a few minutes. But Dennis Dennis was in touch, Dennis Daly, um, on the city centre. Uh, and just some observations of your own, Dennis. Morning. Uh, good morning, PJ. I won't take up much of your time. But I don't know, have you ever used the air coach from Cork to Dublin and Dublin to Cork? I have done not not the last time would have been sort of maybe last April going up to the going up to the Ed Sheeran concert in Croke Park. So yeah, 
Yeah, it's an excellent service. There's no doubt about it. But anyway, we came down on the air coach from Dublin. Nice trip down. And then we parked. I'm not fully committed committed with the area, but if you look it up, it says Lower Glanmire Road. So the air coach pulled in next to a bicycle lane. Yeah. And then there's a bit of a footpath. And then there's a bicycle lane on the opposite side of the road. Right. Now, I was listening to you this morning about talking about planning of Cork City. And the way to judge planning is by your last planning, what you planned in the past. Okay. And to read here, it says, the new stop on Glamour will have a bus shelter, which I never saw. And our customers are seeking for some time. There's also available to provide set-down spaces. Mm. Now, the bus came in, and your baggage is on the left-hand side of the bus, which you have to... The driver opens up the side compartment, and you reach in to get your bag. Yes. So you pull your bags out, and obviously you're not traveling light after your holidays. There's probably about 20 bags. And you step back into the cycle lane. Nice. Right. Now, while I was doing this, it was just as lucky that bicycles on the cycle lane was, you wouldn't see a, a swallow, never mind a bicycle. Because when you step back into the cycle lane, if it was busy, you have the danger of being hit before you get onto the footpath. Yes, yes. But while I was doing this, there was a loud crash, and I won't name the bus operator, but another bus was trying to overtake the park bus, and he blew the wing mirror completely off the side of the bus. Ow. And it flew down to where the passengers were standing. Now, with the possibility somebody could be injured there, wow. gladly it didn't happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, you look at this whole setup there. Now, this was supposed to be an improvement scheme which supports economic activity and, ha- and enhances access to Cork City yeah. Centre through significant improvement options for walking, cycling, and public transport. Yeah, they moved that bus stop, actually. It used to be down on the on Patrick's Quay, and they moved it, didn't they? Correct. On Patrick's Quay, the bus drivers had some hope of pulling in these large buses alongside the river and people to get on and off. Now, this new planning that they did, this is planning now which you want about in Cork City, that in five years' time, everything is going to be hunky-dory. They can't even organise a drop-off for a bus. <laughs> <laughs> so I have no, to I, actually, mind. no, the logic of what you say, Dennis, I'm just yeah. thinking it through in my head here now. So the yeah. old stop down on Patrick's Quay, the luggage yeah. door is on the left-hand side of the bus, the bus yeah. pulled up, the door opened up, That's you took right. your luggage out safely onto the footpath. In yes. the new arrangement, you're taking your luggage out into a bicycle lane while other traffic is going up and down. Yeah, and now you're hoping that when you have these 12 bags and that you've bypassed the bicycle lane onto the footpath, that your lift or taxi is going to come. Not a hope in hell. There's no place for anybody to stop. The buses can't stop. The taxis can't stop. Right. Now, this was. Now, I do, to be fair, Dennis, I do know that some of the bus operators were very unhappy about that yeah. new stuff because they spoke to them last year and they told me exactly what you're telling me now was going right. to happen. It wasn't going to happen. Now, a seven-year-old would go down and have a look at this, and if he was going to plan it, he'd say, no, no, this is not going to work. These are our city planners who are going to plan the middle of the city for you in five years' time. 
It's a this fair This is point. not going to happen. This right. is not going to happen. These are idiots. <laughs> well, and strong it, words, it, Dennis, but I take your point. I take your point there. Let's, let's look at... Dennis, thank you very much. Let's look at what he's saying about the old air coach bus stop versus the new air coach <clears throat> bus stop. On the old air coach bus stop, it pulled up by the key there, by the footpath on... Patrick's key and the luggage opened and you put your luggage in or you took your luggage out from a footpath, a nice safe footpath and you get on the bus and off the bus onto a footpath, luggage on the bus, off the bus, onto a footpath no matter where the bus was going, whether it was coming in or going out, but then <laughs> they moved it and I remember the bus, the bus drivers were on here, the bus operator on here with me last year, so now what happens is the bus is coming in from Dublin and the door opens out into a cycle lane. And the luggage, you take your luggage out into a cycle lane. And you put your luggage in from a cycle lane. And as Dennis experienced, another bus came along and just clipped the wing mirror off the bus that he was getting off of. This is meant to be good planning for the future. Dennis, thank you. 0818969696. Let me... um. Let me go back over what Ashling said because we had a voice note uh, from Peter about it. So Ashling put footage or put a, a clip of footage up on Facebook of a young fella stealing the wing mirror off of her parents' car. Now he's blurred out and the registration number of the car is blurred out but the CCTV clearly picked him up very skillfully removing a mirror from the side of the car. And you'd imagine, God, how furious you'd be. That's criminal damage. Find him, charge him with criminal damage, arrest him, lock him up. All of that. Most people, she says, would see a vandal, a thief, a scumbag, and label him as such. I see a young man who is lost, wandering the roads in the middle of the night, engaging in acts that could result in a life behind bars, all because no one cares enough to see that he's tucked up in bed and asleep. And on the air with me, she said, when you have the skill of empathy, these are the things you see. Here's a young man who's gone the wrong way down life's path, didn't choose it, didn't go to bed one night and decide, I want to get up in the morning and be a thief who takes things off the side of a car. And she looked at it that way. And she thinks that we need to look at it a different way. She sees a young man in a lot of pain who's lonely and angry and needs an intervention. She got the mirror back. Somebody, we don't know who because she's not telling us, and I don't think her dad is telling her, somebody handed her dad the mirror back uh, a couple of days later, whenever it was, and she's thinking more kindness, more empathy, more understanding, more thought about what it is that makes a youngster do something like that. How did that youngster get to be like that or to do something like that. It prompted a voice note. Genie, Matt, boy. Turn the, turn the table around there. Maybe the action of that young fella could have changed or turned someone else. Somebody else could be having and that action of him taking that mirror could send that person over the edge, like, you know. You know, oh, my God. Did she swallow, like, you know, a textbook of forgiveness or what turn it around maybe that person could have sent 
person living in that house over the edge, you know, that they can't take anymore. Another thing done to them by somebody else. Another thing done to them by a stranger, like, you know. Oh, my God. Thank you. Bernie says we need to stop making excuses for these young people. They have choices to do these things or not do them. What you give out, you get back. They need to make the right decisions. He could have walked away and knocked off the mirror. Uh, he did. He just kicked it off. It's it, Ashling's take on it. I, I have to say, I don't believe I'd be capable of such empathy and kindness were it my care. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You come back to what Ashley was saying, uh, and indeed Dennis's point about the... Uh, reorganization of the city centre or anything else that's on your mind this Friday morning 0818 96 96 96 if you're looking in our continuing search for nice things to do in Cork and there are many of them loads of lovely things to do some of them cost a few quid some of them are free but they are out there if you go looking for them I told you earlier in the week about the, the bamboo farm down in Glen Gareth, that I had no idea was there. The missus came down to me Monday morning. She said, well, we'll go and see this. And cost, I think it cost eight quid each for us to get in and wander around. Brilliant things. And that wonderful thing to do. I never even knew it was there. And in our constant pursuit of nice things to do, you might want to go and see the Buffalo Farm. The what, PJ? The Buffalo Farm out near McCroom, where they make buffalo milk and buffalo cheese. Buffalo cheese? Yes, and you've probably eaten it. It's buffalo mozzarella. And if you like your pizza, and particularly like your good locally made pizza with good local products, you've probably had buffalo mozzarella cheese on top of your pizza from Cork's Buffalo Farm. It's out near McCroom. If you didn't know this, listen up. There's more to tell you. And you can get a tour of it. And there are videos and you can sample the food and sample the cheese and drink the milk and see all these things. And if you go out there, there's a woman called Dorothy who will bring you around the farm in a group and they organize tastings and sightseeing and you'll meet the buffalo and you can talk to the buffalo. And there are buffalo who have names and they'll follow you. I, I kid you not. Uh, I'm speaking about Dor- Dorothy Otuma and her company is called Otuma Tours. And she's the woman who you'll meet uh, and who'll show you around the buffalo farm. Um, I read a lovely profile of Dorothy actually in the Echoes uh, Women on Wednesday feature earlier in the week and, and she joins me for a chat now because I, I wanted to, to find out a bit more. Dorothy, you are a hotel manager, a chef, a baker, a restaurateur, a qualified tour guide and goodness knows what else. How did you end up though showing people around a buffalo farm? Good morning. I know. Yeah. Good morning, PJ. How do I get into the work I do? Gosh, it's been a long, uh, not so lonely road, but it's it's been exciting, I suppose, from one side of it. But, you know, you have to... My mother used to say nothing good was ever easy, and I think she's right. 
Um, and I've always tried to look at the big picture. That's another one of my pet things. Big picture, forget the small picture. So I was in the restaurant business. I had my own restaurant. I was born into the restaurant business. And my father used to say, it was really go out there and meet the people. So that was always in my own psyche. Um, my mother was a wonderful cook and chef in their hotel in Inchigila. Uh Simple ingredients, don't do too much with it. Keep it simple and tasty. Flavour, flavour, flavour was her thing. So I kind of kept that in my soul. And my mother saw an ad in the paper for um, a hotel management course starting, certificate course starting in the Metropole Hotel. And she said, do you ever go in there and have a look at that and see what that's about? And I said, you know, I will, I'll go in. Because I wasn't sure if I was going to get enough points to go to university, but I would have rather, I would have thought at the time to go to, to do a nursing. So I went into the Metropolitan I had the interview inside with Stephen O'Sullivan. I remember him well. He owned the Devonshire Arms in, in um, Yall afterwards. And I worked and I, I got an interview there for a trainee management course. And I I couldn't believe that I got something and I was going to be paid to work in a business that I absolutely love. Yeah. Very naive. But I, I've always been, you know, not naive about money, but it's not about the money. It's a huge passion, I suppose, really. Yeah. And that's how I got into it. A family of 11 of you. Eleven of us, yeah. I'm the fourth eldest, yeah. Uh, as I, I say sometimes when I'm on the cruise ship uh, uh, coach tours with people trying to give them a bit of fun about Ireland and about Irish people, you know, I've seven brothers and three sisters and uh, one of the, the driver will always say, oh, there's no no television over there in Inchigila, you know. <laughs> it's hard to crack. But um, anyway, my parents obviously were very devoted to each other and very, very happily married. And I suppose we were glad of the staff that they all produced. I think we were staff in the hotel was what they were at. But I always was out meeting people, always, even though I was always about food, I kind of had the two of them together. And as my career kind of went on about the restaurants and working for Superquin and all the different things that I kind of was able to do because of being trained so well by the Metropole Hotel and Douglas Vance, yeah. um, I got a great sense of, you know, capability, but yet not sure really what avenue I was going to go in and stay in. You, you met a lot of famous people in the Metropole and in the, in the, in the glory day of the jazz festival. Gosh, it was just an incredible place. And of course, that time, PJ, you got accommodation with your job. Can you imagine that? Wow. Today? We got a gorgeous, uh, next door in Hartley Street, there was a, then right next door to the Metropole is a, is a stone built, redstone building. And that was the staff accommodation for receptionists and training managers. Well, we used to be running into work. We were never late for work. We were never stuck on a bus. We were never stuck in traffic. It was unbelievable. It was really an amazing uh, place to work. I was there for three years and there was three. Jim Joy was the accountant, our man, managing account director, managing director, actually. Mm. Yeah. And he brought, of course, was instigated um, in bringing the jazz festival to the hotel into Cork City that time. Now, this is way Way before your time, I'd say. More my time, well, the, the, late, the late 70s. Jim was on the programme yes. with me only a yes. few months ago. Yes. Yeah. yeah, Really? Yeah. Oh, gosh, he was such a gentleman. And uh, they started up. So Ella Fitzgerald, I mentioned. Uh, Rita Coolish was another one. Um, there was loads of people potting in. Uh, Chris Christopherson, for God's sake. But sure, I was only 19. I didn't know who these people yeah. were, you know. Phil Linnis, I think, did you? Phil Linnett. Now, I did remember, I did know him because he came in and I remember his legs were as long. I remember thinking he'd spider legs. He had these long legs uh, and he came in very sweet and very cool. And he goes, hiya, girls. And he was so, so affable and so nice um, and just ordinary. And he was signing the form. And of course, I was like a fool. I mean, he said, you've got beautiful green eyes. And I said, oh, that was me, John. I was finished then. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Everybody, any, anybody who's ever met Philo, I never met him myself, God rest him, but anybody who ever met him said that he'd like the, the rock and roll star on stage and the soft, gentle guy off it. Oh, the, the difference was unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I remember thinking he was extremely tall and thin. I thought I never saw a thin man that tall with the long <laughs> legs. But, and of course, he just was. I mean, he had his eating out of his hand. I wasn't on my own. Like, there was a couple of senior receptionists there. I was only the trainee. But sure, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> but I mean, I, I, you know, it's just that that time and that place and that hotel. It was just, you know, something else, really. You know, you met your husband at a Cayley. I mean, how ordinary Irish is that? I know. And I was minding the bar. It was in my own parents' place. And I was minding the bar. And it was Richie Din's uh, Cayley. There was an annual event and all of Ballingary would be at it. And it was on in Creedence Hotel, my neighbours across the road. Mm. And I was minding the bar. And there was a few Scots inside in the lounge bar. They were a bit rowdy. And I said, I was trying to get them to finish up their, their drinks. But kicked the lads out of the lounge. And one of them was Padraig. And he came along over after a few, of course, he sauntered up over to me. I gave him a bit of abuse. But sure, he was three sheets to the wind at that stage. I'd say he was 19, but <laughs> he said to me, I'll walk you home. And he walked, I said, you can if you want. And he walked me across the road. And to be honest, I just looked at him and thought, I'll marry him. I just, it was just ridiculous, like, absolutely How ridiculous. many years later did you marry him? So seven years later, I married him at 22. I went off over to... Douglas, I had been working in the, in the Metro and Douglas Vance, um, when we finished our course there, there was about four or five of us that finished together. And he said uh, he kind of was very, very. Um, he always wanted to know where we went afterwards and he tried to help us get work elsewhere. Mm. And of course, myself and Jane Top and my colleague, my work friend at the time there, we're still buddies. She, the two of us said, well, we'll go to London. You know, we'll head off to London, the big girls. And Matt Douglas Vance got us, he got a, gave us contact in Lancaster Gate, and he gave us a name of a hotel there. We sent off our little application to say we were trained and we would love to get work there. And we got work there. Hmm. Um, and we headed over to London. We were there for two years. But the second year that I was there, we worked in the Strand Palace Hotel, which is right opposite the Savoy Hotel in London. And we used to pretend we were staying in the Savoy. Oh, of course. <laughs> we used to go in. We used to dress up and go in and act the fool. But anyway, um, I uh, Douglas, I came back one Christmas, the second Christmas I was there, and Padraig said, will we get married? And I said, we will. <laughs> <laughs> Just like that. Well, we'd been writing, writing and writing. Every week there was letters going across. Uh, and again, there was there was accommodation provided for that job. And we were overlooking Covent Garden. And I thought, gosh, can you imagine doing that today? But uh, we didn't appreciate what we had at all at the time, of course, you know. Yeah, the, idea, the idea that you'd, you'd work in a hotel and, and you'd have accommodation provided, I don't think people would believe yeah. you now, you know. No, you know. It's a very roundabout way that you got to the tour guide thing. You went, yeah. there was a cafe, I I, there was yeah. a bakery, there was everything. Yeah, there was. And I suppose that's the beauty of the hotel industry. And I'm doing that, I'm saying that to the students that because we do educational tours on the farm, which I'm extremely passionate about. You know, we're working off with schools and then getting more and more schools coming because they need to get the kids out of the classroom when they can and, and just show them, you know, like I suppose TY's transition students today. But we get fifth and sixth year ex science and business and home ex students. And I'm always saying to them, you know, uh, it's a lovely job to go into because everyone thinks, oh, it's awful and it's hard work and the hours are terrible. But it's so diverse if you want to do other things, do you know? And like I could work in a sh I did work in a shop. You know, because I was I was able to 
telly the till, I was able to mind the float, I was able to do things that were things I'd learned in the hotel business. You know, it was never out of work by choice. Yeah. Um, I worked in Blarney as well. When I got married, um, I was working in Blarney at the time, Blarney Woolen Mills, and Christie's Hotel was the main hotel there, of course. That really um, catapulted me into the tours coming, getting ready for them, getting the excitement, getting ready, getting everything ready. They coming and they are eating and drinking and then they're heading off and the next road coming in, you know, and it was just a great learning curve, I think, um, that extraordinarily I'm back in Blarney with coach tours now and I can just smile and see and appreciate what I learned there. You know, that's always been my way, I suppose. I, I uh, My husband always says to me, you remember the slightest detail and you're always remembering things, but that's... A good thing too, I suppose. You know. I want to get yeah. to the. I want to get to the farm. Yeah, I know um, the farm. And, uh, Sorry, the farm. <laughs> no, you're okay. <laughs> we'll be that. we'll be here till Tuesday, but I... we'll be here till <laughs> when I simply retired from the restaurant business, shall we say? Yeah. I decided my my husband and I were sitting and he says, "What will you do next?" Because he knows me well. He says, "She'll she'll she'll find something else, and she'll be off again." And I saw an ad in the paper for tour guide. Uh, ETB, Cork ETB were advertising for tour guide training for four months and I said Cripes, I'm a great one for talk as you know passionate about my place and my and food and everything. I said could I do something with food tours maybe I was thinking and I said right I'll go in and I did the course it was up in Farron Ferris, that was a laugh because my husband went to school there and I was up in the dormitory was where one of the dormitories was where the course was held with such a laugh over that but uh, it was meant to be I suppose so I did the course and part of that was do a project on your own place because a lot of the guides doing me trained at that time were working in Spike and things you know they were working in St. Finbar's Cathedral and planning to do booze tours and all sorts of things so here was out my little food tour going gosh I'll talk to Johnny Lynch this water buffaloes over the road for God's sake making the most gorgeous milk and cheese so I said I'll take a punt went in with my little brochure made up something online and I said to John I went in didn't really know him that well he'd be a little bit younger than me my brothers would have known him and uh, I said, Johnny, you know, I'm, I'm Johnny's, you Johnny's daughter from Injagila. I am a tour guide and I'm a retired chef and things. And would I, would you be interested in having accredited Valchar? And that's very important with, with farmers and people in business. Accredited uh, tour guide to uh, manage tours for him. And I just was the right person at the right time because they'd won the gold medal for the cheese. There was a lot of people wandering around the place going into the farm, on, into the fields with the buffaloes. And he, he was terrified of his life that something would happen. So because I suppose I, ha- I had the expertise and training, I suppose, to deal with issues and risk analysis and stuff, he kind of said, right, I'm going to bring you in here. He said, we'll try it for a while, see how we get on, but I want you to learn every single thing about farming water buffaloes. And I did. He brought me in, made me milk the buffaloes, he made me make the cheese, and I swear to God, it was the most exhilarating and tiring, exhausting thing I ever did. We started off in 16. We had 10 tours that summer and everyone seemed to be happy. There were mainly farming groups from different associations, Tagusk and, and, and agricultural schools and a few American colleges that had inquired that I said, we'll give you a go and see what you think. And it has developed to, I suppose, 2019. We had 92, 82 tours. Um, last year with 68. So we're developing it way it's such an unusual thing, a buffalo farm in Cork, like. Yeah. And they're just, they're, I mean, the, the, the students I had from Clonakilty, I suppose there was 20 of them, 18, 19 of them were farmers' sons. And there was a daughter, a girl there as well, one girl, thank God. Um, and they just thought, what are these? Because you ha- they're completely different to cows. 
Yeah, they're very friendly. I was looking at the video on they're the website. They're friendly. Yeah, they're friendly. They're nosy. They can be stroppy. <laughs> um, they cannot give milk if they don't want to. They'll just stand in the milking parlour. Some of them will sit down in the milking parlour and bugger off. <laughs> get no milk today. <laughs> so it makes a great story, like, and a great experience for people because they can see it firsthand. I can, I, can, I can see why you, you you love working with them and love telling the stories. Oh, I should just guess. Like, I mean, for, you know, working, I mean, I've worked with humans. I've worked with everything, but working with water buffaloes and humans and animals, of course, because it's farm dogs there. There's pheasants flying around the place. There's swans in and out. There's egrets over there. It's just a beautiful wetland, I suppose. And that's the key of the success there. Are you in your happy place? I am, um, I suppose. And I suppose... Uh, Sometimes my husband, Paul, would say to me, you know, are you, should you have done this long ago? And I'm going, you know, I probably wouldn't have been able to. I wouldn't have the confidence and I wouldn't have had the training yeah. I got from the ETB and from working with the ships and that little bit of confidence that you need. And if you make a mistake, you make a mistake. But yeah. it isn't the end of the world. You have a website. I have a website, Two Matures, and I know there's people coming on and they want to, they want to come and book, which is, you were not an open farm. So you can't just, you know, we're, I'm not there every day. I'm only there when there's a tour booked. Yes, I see. And we have to be very careful because it's a very busy working farm. There's a cheese production on site. So the best thing to do is to ring me or email me from the site. Yes, I see. Um, and say, look, I am a group. Now, families, we don't do families really as such. Two adults, two kids, we're not an open farm. But what I say to people is if they want to gather together, bring Nana and Grandad and bring aunt and uncle with them and form the group of 10 people if they want. Yeah. And you'll be able to, you know, the 160 euros isn't too bad then. It's, it sounds like such a lot of fun. That's great, gas. I mean, out in the open, you never know what's going to happen. And buffaloes, for God's sake, they're just hilarious, you know. And the, lovely cheese as well, so. Dorothy, it's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you. <laughs> no, yeah. Listen, thank you very much. <laughs> I don't know if it made any sense. <laughs> ah, you did. Ah, you did. Have a, have a lovely weekend. <laughs> you too. <laughs> thank you very much, Peter. Cheers. Slán Tamil. Slán, 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 slán. Oh, gas woman, Dorothy Otuma of Otuma Tours, the person who will show you around the buffalo farm should you choose to make your way out there at any time during the summer. We're going to try and do that across the summer months. You know, nice things to do. Different things to do. Some of them free, some of them you'll need to pay for. Uh, so we'll, we'll, be doing, we'll be doing some of that over the months to come. And if you have any particular suggestion of something we might not have thought of to go and see, uh, feel free to let us know. And family-friendly stuff in particular that you can bring the smallies to. There'll be plenty of stuff that the adults can go to. Stuff you can bring the, the smallies to, uh, and they'd be amused by it all. 0818 96 96 on. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, this comes out of nothing. Spotted in Dublin. You think our points are gone, dear? This person is saying they paid nine ninety five for a pint of Hop House in Temple Bar. Could that be Ireland's most expensive pint? I would think it's close to it. Nine ninety five. The Temple Bar itself is a rip-off of the highest order Temple Bar area. It is a total and complete rip-off. But nine ninety five for a pint of beer. I mean, sweet Lord. On Carrig Navarra, this shop that the voice message we got earlier on and the text message we got that you can't even get a bottle of milk in Carrig Navarra. The shop 
this according to Ken Perrett, who knows these things, the shop is closed there for refurbishment. It was sold. And it's being done up and turned into a centra. That will be good. Jimmy reminds us about vaping and school memories. I know, Jimmy, I never did it either. Uh, Jimmy was in the same school as me, Christy. Uh, at break time, you'd go to the cycle shed and you'd have a ciggy. And you were one of the lads. I never did it, but probably better respected by other guys for not doing it, I suppose. Uh, I'm not anti-smoking or anti-vaping, though, but, but do it outdoors, please. And if you're indoors, please don't blow it into my face. Thanks, Jimmy. Oh eight one eight ninety six ninety six ninety six. Do you remember my chat with uh, was it Abby earlier in the week? Abby was the the woman who sent into a taxi going home from work at Cork Airport after just a bad day. Her car had a flat tire. She couldn't get onto the bus. She was just having a rotten morning, and she sat into a taxi up at Cork Airport to get home. And there was a crow started flying along by the taxi and the driver started feeding the crow and the video is gone demented. I was talking to Tabby earlier in the week. So I was walking up to the car and the crow was perched on the the wing there. <laughs> As I was walking up, I was so kind of just kick out <laughs> I just didn't even notice them at that point. So I got into the car then, about 30 seconds. No, I got into the car and... Um, the crow flew away when we started driving and Rory said, oh, he's after, he's after flying away there. And then 30 seconds later, then we were driving down and he goes, look out the window there, he's back. And that's when the crow then <laughs> flying alongside the car. Following the car. So Rory was the driver. What, he, he feeds the, the crow out the window? Yeah, and a few taxi drivers do, apparently. Um, that it's a kind of a thing. So they, he knew what he, he knew, what, like, that the crow was going to take the food. I had no idea. Like, I hadn't a clue um, and then he said one roll down your window there and feed the crow <laughs> he took the biscuit out of my hand yeah is it the maddest thing you've ever seen it's insane <laughs> I still can't even believe it like. did it cheer you up after the flat tire oh, yeah. couldn't get on the bus I, and <laughs> I literally I had posted on my snapchat first before it ever hit tiktok and everyone was replying and they're like oh my god this is brilliant and because um, even in the caption, I say like like I've had the worst day ever for this to happen is like complete contrast. Like it was it was mental. That's Abby on Tuesday prompted a call to tell us that actually there are times when the crows have followed the Dublin Cork train. More in a minute. Question 10. Who plays the penguin in the new HBO TV series? Throw a guess. For 2,000 euros. Man alive. Who plays the penguin in the new HBO TV series? You said Colin Farrell. The answer is Colin Farrell. You've just won 2,000 euros! Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. Murphy, you chancer. Oh, man, that is unreal. Unbelievable. You just won 2,000 euro in cash for 60 seconds work. How are we now? Wow. I'm actually getting married on Friday, so... No way. Delighted to Stacking up the cash. Cash! Cash! The two grand minute. Listen to play at 7.40 and 8.40 every day on Casey and Ross in the morning. Ninety six FM. So, Tommy, you contacted us after hearing Abby. You're a retired train driver, I think, and and you've seen things like this happen on the trains. Morning. 
Good morning, uh, PJ. Yes, uh, it used to happen a lot at Mallow Station. You know, it also happened at Kent Station, Cork, where the signal persons in the cabin used to feed the crows on the handrails outside the signal cabin. What but happened there? They used to, what, the, the crows would come into the signal box, was it? Be, there, there, there's handrails outside the signal cabin. There's a walkway around the cabin. Of course, the old cabin is closed now. But the crows would be perched outside all day and the signal man would be opening the window after he's had his cup of tea and he'd be handing them out across the bridge. Mm. So it went, it went on up to recent years, I think. And was this on the train or on the platform? This was on the platform, no, up in the signal cabin that controls all around the station. Right. But where the trains was concerned, it used to happen in Mallow, and it was gone on for a good many years. When I went out driving first, I used to be fascinated by this, especially the Dublin the Cock train was the most popular one with the crows, because up to 1994, the drivers used to lodge away from home, so they'd have, always have some bit of bread on the way down. Yeah. And you big trees at the cork in the platform, one in Mallow, where the signal cabin is, and as soon as the train stopped, the crows would descend down onto the end of the platform. You would throw bread out to the crowd and wait on the platform, but one or two of them then would go up on the handrail behind right. the cab door. Okay, so you could reach out to them. You could, yeah. I sent him a photograph there on Twitter right. yesterday. And if you ignored them, they'd waddle up to the cab door and they'd start tapping the glass at the door with their beak. Go away. Yeah, that's correct. They tap. So you put out your hand and push it back and they take the bread off you then. The tourists used to be fascinated by it. People going to Killarney and that they used to be fascinated. No, they used to come up the trains coming up from Kerry and Cork as well, but the Dublin to Cork trains were the most popular with them. You'd wonder why and maybe they knew there was good, good, good knew, grub on they board. Knew the, they knew where the food was. <laughs> and when you'd be starting away from the station, then the crow would remain on the handrail. You'd go past the cabin and you'd be nearly down onto the viaduct and then he'd fly away as the train stopped to get up the Oh, I see. So they'd wait yeah. to see was there any more coming like. Yeah, the, 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 the noise of the locomotives didn't bother them in, in the least. Yeah. But yeah. after 94, then it started to fizzle out. The lodge in the way was gone. And of course, they had no handrail till to, you know, to lodge, and then they would yeah. come up and come down the platform, but it started to fizzle out then after that. But it, every time you come down in the Dublin, the Cox train without fail, they'd be there. I always made sure I kept bread for them. Yeah, that's gas. That's you gas. Know. Come here. But I mean, to see the hundred, to see the crowd of me descend off the trees down onto the platform as soon as the train arrives. Brilliant. Brilliant. Like as if they were watching for you. Come here. Maybe it had something to do with the breakfast on the famous breakfast on the the, the Dublin. I only mentioned the man's name a few weeks yeah. ago. He, it was John was his name, and he John, used to put down your tray. Sir, is he still that's around? Right, that's right, John Connolly. I only spoke to him a couple of weeks ago, and he's keeping very well. Ah. His son Sean is a signal person in the station for a good few years now. He was a character. He went on to work he in the was, Kings, he didn't was. he? Yeah, he went on to the Kingsley then after the network catering was finished and he was in the Kingsley for a few years. But uh, he entertained the customers and he went for many years on the 7.30 from Crofty Houston in the morning. The younger people wouldn't remember the fact that you'd get a full, freshly cooked fry Exactly. And in the evening time you get a freshly cooked bit of steak or a mixed... Actually, 
cooked there and then on the train. Happy days. There was, and the same coming down on the 1300, say, over Houston, you got your fish and chips as well and whatever. And that's what appealed to people, the fact they could get the freshly cooked food on board appealed to them. Yeah. yeah you'd be, uh, there'd be a queue they, down the train, like. They used to, they used to be, they see the, the first coach they'd have to serve leaving Cork was the city goals. Of course, they got the meals to their table. So that coach was served first. And after Mallow, then the dining car opened for food. And hmm. you had, I often saw a queue out past the next coach yeah. waiting to get into the dining car. It's no wonder the crows knew the busy train. <laughs> they, 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 knew, they, they, they knew where the food was. They probably could smell it. <laughs> Just another thing there, PJ, yes. you mentioned, mentioned that the crows and the railway. During the steam days, there was a kind of a whistle that the drivers used to sound and the steam engines called a crow whistle. Okay. In the steam days, trains had to be assisted up the heavy gradient out of Cork. As you probably know, there's a big pull out of Cork station up to that Pekin. Yes. And the heavy trains would have two steam engines in front and there'd be a banking engine behind which was assistant to Blarney. Right. And the drivers, when they were ready to start, they used to give what they called a crow whistle. The driver in front would give two, the driver behind him would give two, and once he did, he held that up front, they would start pushing the train, then the engines in front would start pulling, and he'd start pushing. Crikey. And there, that was known as a crow whistle. You've educated me, because I've never uh-huh. heard of such a thing until this very, no, very it day. Was, it was in the rule book. It was in the rule book and all the, the railway rule book about the driver giving the crow whistles when assisting another train. Tom, it's great to look back. And please, when you're talking to him, give my regards to John Connolly. He served me many a fry-up. I will. I'll send, I'll send uh, Sean a message. Thank you very so, much. No problem, PJ. Take care. Cheers, Tom. Cheers, Tom. My best to, to John. He apparently walks around Ballon Lock every day near Silverdale. Oh, Christ, that's where my mammy lives. That's where I grew up with Silverdale. Nice to hear that. The minds are live. Join the conversation. Call 0818 96 96 96. Text or WhatsApp 083 396 96 96. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. This is the Opinion Mind with PJ Coogan. Coach 96FM. Um, um, Eugene reminds me that the tunnel, the railway tunnel, which I don't know if it still is. Virgil, you might know this. It, it was the longest railway tunnel in Europe at one point. The tunnel that when you go into and you go out of Kent Station and come out somewhere there in Blackpool, Kilbarry, that was at one point the longest railway tunnel uh, in, in Europe. I'm not sure it still holds that title. Um, originally, says Eugene, it would have come out at the, Rat, at the Ratmore Tunnel on the road and they had to build a road over the rail line because it was causing too much trouble. Thank you, Eugene. Oh eight one eight ninety six, ninety six ninety six. There is a fascination with the royal family, and of course, this weekend, uh, the coronation is on. It's on the telly tomorrow for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. And, hours. and will you be watching? And I think I probably will. Actually, I probably will because I, I like the way they do pomp and ceremony. They no one does pomp and ceremony quite like the British. It doesn't mean I'm a royalist. It doesn't mean I care about them at all. I just probably will watch it on the television but in a little while I'll be talking to a man who will be there in the thick of it all in a working capacity and that's uh, later this hour by the way before anybody asks me no no 
I will not be leaving Cork's 96FM to take over as the new front frontman of the Late Late Show. Very kind of you to somebody to suggest it. Okay, it was my son. Anyway, um, I see where Claire Byrne has pulled out. Um, they, they kind of, I'd say they have a crisis up there now because Ryan Tuberty's last Late Late Show is the 26th of May. That's like only three weeks away. So, so they need to have an announcement made, you would think, before that. Um, so Claire Bourne, not interested. Miriam O'Callaghan, not interested. Uh, they're talking now about Patrick Keelty. Which should be, he's an interesting choice, actually. Uh, Oliver Callan, which kind of could mean that with the right disguise, you could have a different presenter every week, if Ollie was there. Sarah McInerney, name still being mentioned. Angela Scanlon was who Crossy pointed out to us a few weeks ago could be the surprise replacement for Tubbs. Tubbs, I think Tubbs said on his own program this morning that Claire Bourne was making the right decision in ruling herself out. Anyway, we'll find out. If we care, I think we probably care more about the coronation than we do about who will front the the Late Late Show from, from now on. 0818-969696 One of the things, I said this earlier on this morning One of the things that makes people nervous About appearing on a radio show uh, Is their voice We, we kind of have this universal thing That we don't like the sound of our own voice In fact, when we were kids uh, Or young people It was always, it was a criticism. Do you know, oh, he loves the sound of his own voice, or she's very fond of the sound of her own voice. That was, that was a criticism of somebody. I can always remember. Uh, Mike Murphy is at the UCC School of Applied Psychology. And Mike, you've been looking into this because you recorded your own lectures during lockdown and, and you were shocked at the sound of your own voice. Morning. Morning, how are you doing? Very good. Uh, uh, I I wouldn't say I was shocked. I was more appalled. Really? You know, um, uh, I knew perfectly well that I didn't like the sound of my own voice recorded. But like everybody, I guess, I've, you know, I've heard recordings on my own voice since I was a kid and a teenager. Um, and, it, you know, it, like everybody, I think my voice always sounds really, really bad to me when I hear it. Uh, it just sounds totally different to to how it sounds in my head when I'm speaking. Um, and so I generally try and avoid listening to any recordings on my lectures, but I, I had to listen back to one uh, uh, just to, to gather up some some detail for uh, another piece of work I was doing. Uh, so I had to brave it. And uh, yeah, it was just very unpleasant, very unpleasant. So it, it stimulated me to write that article. There's a physical reason, I think, why we sound different to our... Our own voice is the voice we're most familiar with. But we sound mm-hmm. different to ourselves than we do to the rest of the world. We certainly do. And that, like you say, there's a very specific physical reason for that. Um, like we all know, sound travels and it, it travels in waves. And in order to travel, it needs to be conducted by something else. Um, you know, the, the, the old line that in space nobody can hear you scream, that yeah. tagline for some some movie or other. It's literally true because there's a vacuum, so there's nothing to carry the sound. Um, uh, normally, when we hear a sound, when we hear somebody else's voice, it's after coming to us through the air. Yes. And it's the air that conducts it. 
But when we are hearing our own voice, it's coming to us through the bones in our skull. Okay. It's coming directly up through our larynx, up into the bones of the skull, and it's being taken right into our, our inner ear, which is where it is then converted into electrical energy, which is interpreted by the brain as, as sound. Um, but bone conductance, like you know the way if you're at a lake, sound travels faster. Yes. Or it travels further and you get stronger. That's because the water is denser and it conducts the sound more effectively. It, your, your voice bounces across the water. Exactly. Uh, and it's, it's, it's uh, an incredible phenomenon, but it makes perfect sense when you think about it. Mm. Bone is a lot thicker and denser than the air. And it's an awful lot better at picking up, in particular, the very low frequencies, so the deep sounds. Yeah. So most of us sound a lot deeper to ourselves than we do to other people. <laughs> I'll come back to that um, in the end, but why is it that we are we seem to be, so many of us, Mike, pre-programmed to not like the sound of our recorded voice, psychologically? Yeah, we're getting totally into a fantastic, fascinating realm of psychology there, I think, Uh, uh we all have an idea of who we are. Like the way we operate in the world generally is we, we apply what are called in psychology schemas. And it's our just our frame of understanding things. Right. Like, um, you know, if I were to say to you something on the lines of you're looking very well this morning, um, you, know, you might take that as a, as a compliment or you might alternatively take it as a kind of a, a, a sly dig. Uh, even though I had said exactly the same thing in exactly the same tone. And some people's schema will tell them this person is being sarcastic. And another person will say this person is being pleasant and friendly and nice. And it's just a personal thing. We all have an idea of what the world is like. And one of the most important things in the world for us is ourselves. Yeah. You know, who we are, who we think we are. Part of that is around what we look like. Part of that is around what we sound like. Yeah. And we hear ourselves all the time. Um, but we hear ourselves through the sound coming through the bones in our skull. Right. And then when we hear our voices coming at us through the air, it just sounds wrong. Yes. And it sounds like it's not us. It's kind of like the auditory equivalent of, imagine if you looked in a mirror and the person looking back at you was 20 years older than you were. Yes. And, and the shock of that. This schema where you say mm-hmm. that, you know, we have a way of thinking and a way of getting through. So I might say something to a person in jest mm-hmm. and they get offended. And I have to say, I was only messing. Did you not hear the? They didn't hear the the nuance in how I said it. I was messing with them, but they picked it up wrong. Or did they? Yeah, and that. They did. They, they they like communication is a two way street, uh, and like they, there's nothing all that straightforward about communication. And sure, you know yourself the phenomenon where uh, uh, um, you can be having a conversation with somebody, and the next day you both talk about it, and you've both got a totally different recollection of what was said. Yes, uh, yes. and n- nobody is. I, I I sometimes refer to that simply as marriage, um, <laughs> but. Uh, Nobody's lying there, necessarily, mm. but people just interpret it differently. And part of that is around the schema that they had going into the conversation, and part of it is just around how they see the world generally anyway. And then, you know, some sometimes 
people will be in, in a bad mood uh, or they will maybe be accustomed to enjoying their life maybe as kids. They grew up in an unsupportive background uh, where there were slidings delivered at them all the time. And they're, they're sensitive to that and they're programmed to pick things up in that way. And they're not programmed to pick up the kind of the, the jokey tone in your voice, yeah. you know. Yeah. Do you know the so way that hear the sound and then interpret it? I wanted to bring this to you because I've been bringing this conversation into the context of, of people taking part in, in, a, in a show like this, which is all about conversation. And mm. we would get often two and three page emails from people that are brilliantly written. Yeah. And you know that the writer is intelligent, funny, thinks out their point, makes it really well. You ring them up and say, would you come on the air and say, oh, I couldn't possibly, I couldn't possibly, I hate the sound of my voice. If you're that articulate on paper, surely you can be that articulate with your voice. That's a very interesting point now. And I'd say it's a somewhat different thing. Uh, Part of it might be, and we often do say, God, I don't like the sound of my own voice as an excuse for that. But oftentimes it's it's a, a confidence thing. Uh, because we're used to writing. Mm. And if we're writing something, we can do it. It's it's what we call a asynchronous. It's not an immediate back and forth conversation like we're having now. You can take your time writing it, you can go back and you can read over it and you can change it before you send it off. Yes. Once you say something on radio, it's said. Yes. Yeah. That's it. Um, and you mix something up, you say something embarrassing, you get something wrong, it's there and you can't take it back. And because of the fact you're on radio and you know that there's thousands of people listening, um, that's going to be something that's going to be on your mind because it's not like a one-to-one conversation. And the world has changed too, Mike, to a point where we pick up more on these little faults. I think especially remotely. Yeah, when we're it's it's much the same thing that we see with uh, the kind of some of the toxicity we find on social media, that because there's that distance between the person you're listening to and you, that it kind of gives you permission almost to to give free rein to your your you know your personal frustrations or you know whatever is 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 hassling you, getting you down. And you can take it out on somebody who, in a way, doesn't really exist for you yeah. because you're not seeing them or, you know, um, you can have a cut off somebody. Some of the very nasty, toxic kinds of insults that you see flying around on on, on message boards and so on. Precisely. And they're directed at somebody you've never met, you never will meet. There's never going to be any blowback and there's never going to be any judgment on it. That's true. So That's you're safe, you know. I have one last one for you, and I'm, I don't know if you've thought this uh, about, about this. So we have we explained why the, the the physical reason why our voice sounds one way to us and sounds another way to somebody else when they hear it, and certainly when we hear it back, we don't often recognise it as our own voice. Which is the true voice, Mike? Is it the one I hear when I'm talking, the one I hear in my own head, or the one you're hearing sure. now at the end of the line? Which is the true voice? Jeez, you're getting you're getting very deep for this hour of the morning. Uh, uh, well, you see, our voices are our living in this line of work, you know. Oh, listen, same goes for myself. Yeah. I, I I totally understand that. Um, the answer is neither, and also both. Oh God, because your 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 voice is just it, it is your it is air passing over your vocal cords. 
mm. and the, the 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 frequencies that produces. So that's that's your voice, but then how somebody else hears it, and how you hear it yourself is a different thing because the voice has moved through different matter or different material to get to you. There's a whole science. So there is, but it's it's they're both they're both your voice, okay. but in in real world terms, what everybody else is hearing is the one you don't like. <laughs> we leave it there. Thank you, Mike Murphy of uh, the UCC School of Applied psychology. So you don't like the sound of your own voice? There's a reason for that. It's not the one you're hearing. I mentioned the coronation. Uh, That's on tomorrow. It's on television all over the place. BBC have given it to RTE for free and they'll be carrying it for four hours. Sky will have it. Everyone will have it tomorrow. All day long, pretty much. For several hours anyway. Everywhere. And but we will watch it. It will be watched. Why are RTE showing it? Because people will watch it. Simple as that. You can say you won't, but you will. Um, one of the reasons I'll watch it, or certainly watch some of it anyway, is because I'm fascinated by how the British do pomp and ceremony. They do it like nobody else on the planet. And also, there's a kind of a fascination, I think, with the royal family anyway. Uh, I can remember uh, Charles and Di's wedding, and I can remember it. Kate and William's wedding and people taking rooms, actually taking rooms in hotels and function rooms here to have royal wedding parties. I saw it. I covered one as a journalist. I went to one. People got together in a room, I think it was the Metropole or somewhere, for William and Kate's wedding. And they were there in their finery for a royal wedding, for a family that they'll never meet or never see. So there is a fascination, whether they're prepared to admit it or not. And when the Queen came here and went to the English market, the whole town went out to sea. But so with, And there's a, an exhibition in, the papers were full of this, an exhibition of Diana's dresses that goes on sale, or goes on exhibit rather, in Kildare this week. And on, remember dresses, was it, was it, Pip, was it Kate or Pippa? Kate, I think, or her sister Pippa. One of the two of them anyway wore a dress to an event a few years ago and it sold like hotcakes from every shop on the high street for, for days and weeks afterwards. It, it, look, whether we are prepared to admit it or not, we have a certain fascination with the royal family. And the coronation, whether you're interested or you're not, or whether you'll watch it or you won't, it's probably the biggest international news event to happen in this part of the world this weekend, if, if not so far this year. And one man who will be there, right at the heart of it, is Arthur Edwards, who is the veteran royal photographer from the Sun newspaper. Now, he's taken literally thousands of pictures, not just of Charles and Di, but of every royal since he joined the paper over 45 years ago. And the coronation is taking place on the same weekend that a new documentary about Arthur is released to celebrate his career. That uh, drops this weekend. Arthur also has very, very strong connections to Cork. And he's done the opinion line with me a few times over the last number of years. And Arthur, uh, it's, it's really good to speak to you again. Good morning. It's a pleasure. It's an absolute pleasure. Um, it's one of my favourite places in the world, Cork. Recently been over there for a confirmation and... Uh, I love it so much, I bought a house there. <laughs> we'll talk about your Cork connections a little later. But Arthur, yeah. you've been working with the Royal Family, taking their pictures for over 40 years. 
when you got into being a press photographer, was it the royal family was where you always wanted to work, or how did you end up there? That was a mistake. I was having. A, I'd not joined the paper long. Two years I've been and uh, doing general news and cricket and and football and uh, getting a good run of it. And um, and then one day a, a reporter in the office on a Sunday said, "Do you want to come to the polo this afternoon?" And I went to the polo at, at Windsor, and uh, Prince Charles was playing. And at the end of the match, I didn't have the long lenses or anything then, uh, but he fed polo. He fed sugar to his polo ponies. And I got a really cracking picture and I took it in and it went straight in the paper the next day. And I thought well, that was good, you know, because it's very difficult to get a picture in a national newspaper here. And um, so I went the following Sunday as well and then got it, did it again. And I thought, well, this is not too bad, you know, and I started, you know, not still doing my other work, but, you know, just keeping my eye on that. And there was no one else doing it. There was no other photographers there. You know, it was just, he'd just come out of the Navy. And the uh, editor said to me, well, Prince Charles made a speech that 30 was a good time to get married. And he was now just come out of the Navy, he was 28. And he said to me that, so I want to find out, who, I want you to find out who he's going to marry now. Where do you start? The only thing I knew that he played a lot of polo. Yeah. So I went match after match and I got great, exclusive stuff. And then the other newspapers sort of woke up to the idea that this was a big story. And one day I photographed his bald spot and he called me up about it. And uh, I said, look, he said, you've been getting, uh, I said, have you been getting much grief over it? He said, no, he said, but everywhere I go, people are photographing the back of my head. <laughs> so that's how we, that's our first ever conversation. And then I just carried on and then I found Diana and, uh, and then I thought, you know, it's all going to come to an end then. So I sent him a telegram. It was worked with a great reporter at the time, royal reporter called Harry Arnold. And we sent him the king, or the king now, but the Prince of Wales then a telegram saying congratulations on your engagement to Lady Diana Spencer. I hope you both be very happy. Mm. And the next day, one came back from him to us saying, thank you for your kind words. I hope you won't be made redundant. (laughs) Then, of course, there was the wedding and the build-up to the wedding. And, and of course, after that, very soon after that, they were expecting their first child, William. And and then we did this massive tour to Australia. And um, we just never stopped working. It was... uh, it was like every day doing something different. And then, of course, Diana got very involved in different charities. So it just went on and on and on. And, you know, I did then I did all these massive tours around the world. And, well, just a, just a, a great job. And, and I've never, ever felt happier doing it. Is it possible, Arthur, to get to know someone like Charles on any kind of a personal level? Is it fair to say you consider him something of a friend after all these years? You know, people suggested that to me. I don't. I never agreed to that. Really, I feel, I feel like he call, he calls me Arthur, and I call him Sir, oh. or Your Majesty, and and that's how it's always going to be. But on my big birthdays, I'm now 82, but my big birthdays, 60, 70, 80, always sent me a lovely present and wrote me a beautiful letter. Hmm. And he, every Christmas, he invited my wife and I to his Christmas party. Hmm. And he made a big fuss of my wife, which I really, that really impressed me because, you know, she, I would never have achieved anything without her. Hmm. And because she just brought up our children while I was chasing the royals around the world, photographing them for the paper. And and, and he was just wonderful with her. Hmm. He And then slowly I began to realize this man wasn't just about playing polo. He was doing amazing things. Like he came out of the Navy and he started the Prince's Trust. 
with his navy pension. Yeah, he got a, he got a he got a gratuity as he left the navy, and he put that in. He started the pension, started the um, the Princess Trust, and and that started to grow and and have great results. And then he became a visionary. He then con, you know condemned poor architecture. He was the original environmentalist, really, wasn't he? He was, and he was wrote. And I can tell you now, PJ. 30, 40 years ago, we were going to the rainforest. I've been to every rainforest in the world. I've been three times in the Amazon rainforest where he's pleaded with the president, stop ripping up this precious resource. And he said, and he kept saying, it's not for you. It's not for me. It's for our children and our grandchildren. And he went on and on and on and he never stopped. And now everybody now is concerned about it. It's almost too late, you know, the way the, the, mm. the planet's going now. I mean, it's 40 degrees in Spain last week in April. And, you know, it's just crazy. So he was right, and he and he's very much a visionary. And he's a man that's never frightened to speak up. Mm. And you cannot praise him. He's a very humble man. You know the Irish, um, Arthur. Yeah. You know yeah. the love that was here, for example, for Diana. Uh, and yeah. you know that even to this day, people here look at Charles and look at Camilla, and, and, and they don't see what you're talking about. Is that fair to say? You know, yes and no. I mean, I've been coming ever since the Queen came in 2011, I think it was. Mm. The Prince has come back every year. Every year we go well, to a different part of Ireland. We've been, we were in last, this last year, we were in um, Kilkenny and, and Tipperary and Waterford. I've been all over. I've been to the West. I've been to, mm. down to Kerry, all these places. He wanted to keep the spirit that the Queen uh, brought to this between our two countries when she came, and every he comes now, I've seen huge crowds for that. CJ, yeah, I've seen him hit the, hit the hurling out the park. I've seen him, uh, Camilla, at the, the, with the, with the racehorses. She was Henry de Bromhead stable last year. I mm. went with her. I'm just hoping he comes if he can go again as the king. Now it's a kind of whole different level. It is whether he can come next year, but I hope he does because you know. And I came to every one of those visits, and I love it. And even last year. When all the all the press pack, all the people covering the royals went to the West Indies mm. uh, with with William and Catherine, I came to Ireland with with the King, with with Prince Charles and Camilla, mm. and it was a great trip. When he went to the North shortly after becoming King, and he met Michelle O'Neill, and Michelle O'Neill now going to the coronation yeah. at the week at the weekend, given his military history, his own personal military history, yeah. times have changed so much. But then Sinn Féin's in a whole different party now. It's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the primary party in the North now. Yeah. I mean, she's the, and if they ever get that assembly back, she's going to be the boss. And I can tell you now, that's a big change. And Sinn Féin is a lot better now. It's not, you know, don't people don't look on it as a crazy organisation. They look upon it as a, 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 a political party that's going to do good things for the, for the North. And, 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 you know, you can't ignore that. I mean, they have. They've really brought their... They're really, you know, they've got the people voting for them, which is tells you everything. And I mean, it's not like they're, they're they've imposed themselves. They've been, you know, elected. And you know, her coming is everything that the Queen brought when she came to Ireland when she made that great yeah. speech at Dublin Castle, which I was there for. That I'll tell you, it made my hair stand up. When she went to the the Garden of Remembrance in in uh, in Dublin, and, and you know the, where the martyrs are buried. I mean, it's an incredible moment for that. You know, all that brought great goodwill, and he wants to keep that going. He feels this is a great country. Camilla loves it, this country. Uh, and 
and uh, they just they do want to keep it going and they want to uh, you know embrace everybody he wants to embrace all, all faiths he wants to embrace all political parties and whatever's gone in the past we've got to remember that's the past you know we've got to move on it's like when people say oh i like diana well diana died 26 years ago and and we have to all have to move on we all have to take a different assessment of things as it as things change and and it's a natural thing to do time times times do change indeed you mentioned that, that you're 82 but you are still working and you are working for the coronation i am indeed yes and uh and for the last 10 years on my annual review at the sun every year there's a section that said what are your plans for the next year hmm. and for the past 10 years I've put to cover the King's coronation, never thinking I was going to do it, always just a little bit tongue-in-cheek. And, uh, and of course, this year I'm going to do it. The company, my company I work for, you know, they've been, they're all behind it. You know, they've made this documentary of my life, yeah. which um, is going out tomorrow on uh, Talk TV, which, which I'm so excited about. I mean, it's really, they've really did it so well. You know, they've just everything, me meeting the Holy Father. I mean, this is to give you an instance. We went to Rome, and and one photographer only can do the prince meeting Pope Francis. Yeah, I was standing outside doing the arrivals, but that's all. He knows I'm a Catholic. He knows I'm a practicing Catholic, and he sent his press officer out, and he came up and he said to me, "Put your camera down, come with me." And I went in, and he introduced me to Pope Francis. And it's on the video, and if you get a chance to see it, I urge you to see it, PJ. It's a very moving moment for me. I'm looking forward to that. Holy Father, this man is the most important man. He's been working with me for 40 years and introduced me to Holy Father. And I don't know how he did that because everybody that goes to meet the Pope, you have to be, the name has to be given two weeks before to be security cleared. But somehow he made that happen. But he's, you know, he's wonderful. And, um, and I can't tell you, you know, on other personal things, which I don't want to discuss on the radio. Of course. And because it's so personal, he's been absolutely superb. And uh, and I can't tell you, uh, there's a big argument going on here. A lot of young people, they're saying, are not interested in the Royals. Well, young people are not interested in anything like that. They're also interested in going dancing and records and yeah. going out with other, other young people. Arthur, your Cork connections, very strong. You're married to a Cork woman. Well, um, sadly, I just lost her. She's uh, she died in November. Yeah. But we've we have we've got a nice little house in near Cork City, and we are my whole family are in love with Cork. We were all over there uh, two weeks ago for confirmation of one of Anne's um, uh, niece's little girl, and uh, and you know all my children. Absolutely love it. They're all four, three of them, and all my grandchildren now are using this house. You know, I'm keeping the, I'm keeping the court connection alive for as long as I'm alive, and my children will as well. Because we, we, every, you know, when they were children, when my children were children, when they're young children, they used to spend six weeks there, school holidays with their grandmother, and and so they've loved it, and they've got friends there. So yeah, it's strong, and. Um, and I still love it so much, and I'm going to try and get back more and more this year. Um, certainly, once the coronation's out of the way, I'm going to try and get over. So, yeah, it, it's uh, it's always been um, almost every year we've had holiday there since I first went there in 1959 when I first met Anne when I was 19. 
And uh, we got married when I was 21. And I've been coming every year ever since. So it, I've seen Cork City change. I've seen Ireland change. I mean, it, one stage it used to took me over five hours to get from Dublin to Cork. Now you can do it in just over two. So, you know, it's a massive change in a great country and great people. And when people say, what do you love about Ireland? I, more than anything, I say it's the people. The people are the nicest people, kindest people in the whole world. And I've traveled to over 120 countries. And I say that with a lot of authority. Great people. Arthur, it's wonderful to talk to you. And I know that the coronation this weekend is a big moment for you personally. So, so have yeah. a great weekend. I will, PJ. And when I'm over in Cork next, I'll come and see you. That'd be great. Talk to you then. God bless. Take care. Thank you. Thank you, Arthur. Uh, uh, listen, have a good weekend. And so sorry to hear about Anne's passing in the last uh, few months. 0818 96, 96, 96 The great Arthur Edwards. That documentary, if you want to try and pick it up, Talk TV, you can find it on Sky. And it'll be, I think it drops on Amazon as well this weekend. If you have Prime, it's called Arthur, My Life with the Royal Family. Join the conversation. Call us now. 0818 96 96 96. This is the Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Cork's 96 FM. Talking last week about Kin, uh, the RT's Kin season two. I haven't actually seen season two. I'm still kind of had it on the to watch list for later in the year, but uh, certainly season one I really enjoyed. Even though you could say it's a sort of a love hate mark one in a bit, which will never quite be in that bracket uh, as love hate. But, but good, strong drama. I enjoyed season one immensely. Uh, season two, as I said, I'm, I'm, I'm storing it for later. Uh, Shirley, you're a big fan. Morning. Morning, PJ. Yeah, no, I'm enjoying it, definitely. I think, as you say, it's it's not the same as Love Hate. It's the same, but different. Do you know what I mean? As in yeah. the idea isn't original. Um, we've seen it before in Love Hate, but I think how, how Kin is kind of more polished, where Love Hate was gritty, it, it's still holding its own in, in that category, you know? Mm. That was Love Hate's win, though, that it was so gritty. It, it, it would stand out its own anywhere in the world. Exactly. And I think that that chaos that we had in Love Hate, like I know there's been a lot said about the violence in, in Kin, but I, I remember Love Hate being a lot more violent well, than Kin and I a lot so. more kind of aggressive. Um, and darker. I thought it I think, was darker. The violence was darker in, in, in Love Hate. It was. And I mean, I think, you know, the production of Kin is far slicker than than Love mm. Hate. There's obviously a lot of money being spent in it. There's a lot of production value in it. Um, and while we're not seeing anything new in terms of like the gangland story, it doesn't, I don't think that's taken from it. I think it, it's it's just mm. as enjoyable for what it is, you know. Yeah. Some people are critical of it though, that it and Love Hate, that they project an image of Dublin that's not a real image. What do you think? Do you know what? I think in relation to making Dublin look bad or projecting a negative image, Dublin is no more than a backdrop for a story here. Like, I don't think it's glamorising the crime. I don't think it's making the location look bad any more than The Sopranos was bad for New York or Gangs of London was bad for London. You know what I mean? I think yes. you kind of have to, you have to give your audience a bit more credit than that. You know what I mean? I agree. I agree. Are we, are we overcritical, I think, Shirley, sometimes of Irish drama? We make brilliant television in this country and they love it all over the world, but we're hypercritical of it. Is it because it's our own stuff? We watch it with a more cynical eye. 
I think it is. And I think it's because we feel like we have almost personal connections with actors that we've probably seen coming up through the ranks of Fair City or, you know, Ballykiss Angel. Or we feel more connected to, to the cast. But there's no denying in the last couple of years, Irish drama is at the forefront of excellent television. Like we've had things like Smother. We've had Kin, obviously, Love, Hate. We've had Bad Sisters. Mm. Um like there's there's no line that it's 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 wide up there with, with the best of what I'm, I'm glad yeah, you mentioned Smother 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 would stand up eh? anywhere. Come here to Netflix. There's a there's a show. It was Maureen came in here to me uh, during March and she said you need to watch this. You'd love it. <laughs> Some of my colleagues know me well. The Night Agent. Now we're only on episode six uh, and the twists and the turns are are really sort of what the hell. It's been renewed for a new season. It's Netflix's third most watched show of all time. Yeah, this was a show that was number one in Ireland and Netflix for almost the most of March. I don't think it's even dropped out of the top ten. Um, I'm kind of on the fence about this. Uh, I like it, but I think it's a little bit two-dimensional. I don't know, do you remember um, the series that was on ITV a couple of years ago, Bodyguard? With, I do very uh, Richard well, Madden. very well, yeah. And it's it's quite a similar storyline. The night agent is quite a similar storyline. But I think like it has, you know, it's a little bit in places the, the episodes go really fast. And they then do. you have an episode which really drags. And I think when the pacing is off in a series like this, you lose a bit of the tension that you're supposed to have. You know, like you're watching things like Line of Duty and you're tense through the whole thing. Yes. I think the night agent is missing that. It, it's no it's no less enjoyable, but it's it's yeah. just a, it's bingeable, but it's a bit lacking. We got to episode six, and there are not one but two twists in episode six, and one of them is a real oh for goodness sake moment. Yeah, it really is. But I, mm. I, it's been renewed mm. for a second season. But they're saying it'll be a different storyline and even a different cast, which is strange. <laughs> Yeah, I'm a bit confused about that because the ending, uh, without giving any spoilers, le- leaves it right in for, for, it hooks you right through, for instance, to season two. Mm. So you would assume that the story will continue. But you see, this is happening a lot with things like White Lotus, where you leave behind a certain element of it. You ca- you carry through certain actors, yes. but you leave behind the location and the type of story. So it could be something like that, where you will see the principal characters maybe moving through to season two, but the premise will be slightly different and the location could be different. I look forward to getting to the end of season one and when season two starts. Shirley, always good to chat with you, Shirley Donovan. Yeah, I, I, I don't like this thing we do with Irish television. Um, I, I find us terribly cynical about our own because all over the world, our television shows sell and sell well. Stuff made here, stuff written here, stuff produced here sells and sells really, really well and does really, really well. Um, but we, we're very cynical when we're following it I mean, watching Smother, which I thought was brilliant. If you were to listen to or look at the social media about Smother, you'd, you'd think you were watching something entirely different. But that's just me. Wait, one eight ninety six ninety six ninety six on the soaps and kin. I don't watch the soaps anymore. They're depressing and they're always fighting each other. There's enough depression in real life without watching the shows. Says Kate. I, do you include kin in that one? Kate, but yeah, I, I have, don't watch the soaps. I gave up on the soaps a long time ago. Oh wait, one eight ninety six ninety six ninety six. The fourth of June. It's only about. I'll try and do the sums. It's it's not even a month. Well, it's just a month away now, or just not even a month away. It's uh, twenty eight days away. Twenty eight days away is the fourth of June. It is Cork City Marathon. 
day. And thousands of people will turn out for the Cork City Marathon. And of course, 96 and C103 proudly uh, media, part, media partners once again for the Cork City Marathon. And Conor O'Keefe is an ambassador for the marathon, uh, ultra-endurance athlete. So this will be a stroll of a quiet June morning for you, Connor. Morning. This will be a very quiet one for you. Hello. Hiya. This will be. Hi, how are you doing, DJ? This will be an old quiet stroll for you, like. Oh, uh, here. Do you know what? Now, um, a marathon is absolutely no joke. Running of any distance, I don't think, is any joke. And uh, it's great that there's a new 10k route for the Cork City Marathon as well. It should be. It should be a great year for it. Yeah, but you did 32 marathons in 32 counties in 32 days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember chatting to you a number of times there uh, uh, during that marathon and during the kind of the 32 marathon challenge that I did uh, last summer. But this one's going to be a completely different challenge now because I'm looking to I'm looking to run this marathon in Cork in under three hours. What's your best ever? My best ever is three hours and 16 minutes. So I'm looking to shave off a good lot of time here, like you know. Yeah, that's hard work, even for a, an ultra endurance athlete like yourself. Oh, big time. I think it just presents a different challenge. Like, you know, I think ultra marathon is like, you know, there's going to be a lot of times where you're just doing it for so long, you're on your feet for so long, that it, and like sleep deprivation and those kind of things are what you're dealing with. For a marathon, I think there's just that challenge of, um, like, it's just such a, a lung buster and, it, you know, it can really um, get into the legs and stuff. It's just try, trying to get through to that 42 kilometer distance is, is no joke, like. Can you really train for that point? That point in the in, in the run where, like you said, the, the the lactic acid builds up and the pain, and you hit the wall. Can you train for the wall? Um, yeah. Well, look, I think that if I wasn't able to do so, I wouldn't be have finished uh, the ultra marathons that I took part in because there is a time that'll come in any of those races where you do kind of start questioning yourself and it's, it's natural for human beings like to doubt themselves. And even in the run-up to a marathon, you can start doubting yourself and you can start backing away from the ledge, you know. Um, and I think that's when the fight really begins is that the, the, the kind of final weeks of preparation, the final weeks of training, that's when you actually start to train that mental side. And when you're on your, you know, all, everybody who's listening to this now who's training for the marathon will know all about the long run. You know, you do your long runs on a Saturday or Sunday. You head out for two or three hours and you do your 20 or 22 or 23 miles um, to get your long runs in. Those are the times where you're going to start to build that resilience, that mental resilience, where um, you're 20 miles into that run and you have a couple of kilometers left and they're always the toughest to finish out. It's when you kind of really start to pull um, on that kind of inner strength that you have inside in yourself. And mm. by God, if you're training for a marathon, you're, you're after building a lot of inner strength, you know, and uh, that'll come when it comes to rain, race day as well. A really good question. Should you at least have one go at the full distance, if it's particularly for your first marathon, should you at least have one go at the full distance before you do it for real? Look, I could, I, 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 I could, it's easy for me to say no, um, that you don't need to do that, but if you feel more comfortable um, that you're towing the line in Cork on the 4th of June, having done 42 kilometres um, beforehand, go out and do it. You know, if you want to go out and do it and it will ease your mind and you're, you're in better form and less jittery on race day, absolutely. On the other side of it, I don't think it's necessary. Um, I think if you're doing something that's... If you're, if you're running the pace you want to run for the marathon, let's say you want to do the marathon in four hours 
and you run the you run thirty or thirty two kilometers at that four hour pace, um, maybe thirty four kilometers at that four hour pace beforehand, you will have a great idea of, of what shape you're in before the marathon. You know, I don't think there is a need for to run the full thing, but if it settles the mind, if you're able to get to sleep better on the third of June the night beforehand because you've already done the forty two go out and do it, you know, and it's, um, it's, it's each to their own. It's the last four weeks to go and it's pretty much however you get to that starting line in the best shape that you can, that's how it goes. Connor, there's a 10k uh, this year as well and we are giving away a free entry so people yeah. can 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 uh, call us now if they want to avail of that. We'll talk again maybe uh, towards the event itself, Connor. Connor O'Keefe, who is an ambassador for Cork City Marathon for this year and no better man having done 32 marathons in 32 counties in 32 days last year. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.